What are you eating? That's that's very crunchy and loud. Cough drop. Sorry, I'm trying. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> I'll get it out of the way since I'm assuming we're not technically on air at this point. No, we're not going to be on air until you go super apes, super apes, super apes, and oh then my we make God. that a theme song. <laughs> <laughs> I'm too sick to do the voice, but otherwise that'd be oh amazing. I'm totally using this as the cold open, by the way. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Baxter Building Episode 2. I am Graham McMillan, and with me is my esteemed genius of a friend and co-host. I just gave you the hand and then realized you couldn't see me. I couldn't like, see a hand, Graham. Come on, I'm a genius, uh, audio, but I'm not able to... Podcasts. Come on. Uh, that, that's Jeff Lester. He's he's uh, wonderful and smart and will be the one saying the intelligent things during this week's episode. <laughs> we'll really see about that, Graham McMillan. <laughs> we are planning to put that to the test very soon. Yes. Uh, this is, for those reading along at home, us going through issues 13 to 24 of the Fantastic Four by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. Uh, and uh, potentially annual number one, if Jeff had a chance to read it, because I know that I did. I d and I did as well. Oh, fact, yeah. so good. That, the reason I knew that that was part of the thing is, uh, whereas last time I was reading through the uh, the scans from the Fantastic Four CD-ROM, mm -hmm. this time I was reading through the Fantastic Four Omnibus Ooh. that Marvel put out a few years ago that I got from the library. And I mentioned that in for one reason in particular, which I'll get to later for an appropriate issue. Ooh, suspense. Bum, bum. But yeah, issues 13 to 24. Uh, even though it's already saying the world's greatest comic magazine on the cover by this point, it really could be called the world's most uneven comic magazine. Oh boy, that's for sure. Let me tell I mean, you. Th this is a, a... I mean, we're only, what, a year in, and this is a rough going of a year. It really. Oh, I'm so glad you said so, because I remember, you know, after reading through those first dozen issues and being like, you know, it was it, it was rough hewn, but it was very enjoyable, and there, there were points that just pointed to, like, kind of kind of things kind of progressing like there was only maybe one or two duds in there and then issues 13 13 through 24 i was it's shocked not central mm-hmm mm -hmm. i i was surprised by how many of these that i read originally and i remember thinking were actually much earlier in the run uh than i would have otherwise thought you know um what do you mean you uh, as in well, uh, or... yeah, I mean, just in terms of by the time you get to something like, say, uh, some of the stuff that, that turns around the right around the 20s, the Prisoners of the Pharaoh and the Mysterious Molecule Man, the Hate Monger and uh, the Enfant Terrible, you know. But he's not the Enfant Terrible. He's the Infant Terrible, which is my favorite thing about that. <laughs> Well, so you, you could, well, I mean, we'll get to that then. Yes. That's issue twenty-four. But you can tell that at some point someone said "Enfant Terrible" to Stan Lee, and he was like, "I'm stealing that, right? But I'm going to Americanize." Well, and, and we'll get into this sort of 
um, down the line. But I'm I'm fascinated. I'm hoping the extent to which we can sort of dig into these issues of the Fantastic Four and talk a little bit about sort of how the formula changes, how it progresses, how it regresses in some cases, and how it sort of feels as if... Um, uh, I feel like maybe Lee and Kirby, and, and to me, certainly Kirby, who I think of as the, the strong, like, creative impetus to these things, and, and Stan Lee being sort of the guy who manages to smooth it all over and make sure. it super yeah. palatable. Yeah. yeah, Kirby is the author. And, yeah. And Lee is the, is the showman, and, and it's very obvious in these issues. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I get the sense, and it could just be me, that Kirby is trying to figure out a way to... a new way to deal with his obsessions, and it almost feels like he kind of can't... he can't quite figure it out, you know what I mean? And so there's a little bit of the... Like, uh, reading the stories, I was like, okay, it's not so much that they're treading water, they're just rehashing stories. It's like, I literally feel that Kirby is trying to figure out a way to kind of break through to that next kind of cosmic level that eventually yes. he does yes. do. And that's that's fascinating that you say that, because that was my overall thought reading these as a batch as well. There is so much retread, but it doesn't feel like retread as much as... Kirby's trying to scratch an itch. Yeah, exactly. It's 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 a it's an it's something that he's trying to get at. It's almost problem solving without it really being cognizant of it as a problem. I don't think. Mm-hmm. And so it's just this, these patterns that keep playing out in an o- almost obsessive way until they break through uh, into totally new ways later. You know? uh, and I'm um, you know in the process. I mean, there's some great comics in here, and actually, yes. issue thirteen is really strong oh my um, god but there's yes. also some goofy ass shit in these <laughs> comics and i mean we'll we'll inevitably pick this apart when it comes up mm-hmm. but there mm-hmm. is some absolutely wacky stuff in these comics yeah yeah that, that is surprisingly wacky yes um and not even not even just wacky in the sense of like well that's just silly but mm-hmm. also you get the feeling that Lee and Kirby aren't even paying attention to their own stories at times. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. I mean, there are points where... I mean, there's all sorts of stuff going on here. There's points where I feel like Kirby and Lee are cross-purposes. There's times where Kirby's not paying attention and Lee's trying to tie things up very neatly, like I think he does with the the infant Terribla in a way that, that works. Um, there's ways where neither of them are paying attention. Yes. You know. there's, there's a wonderful, wonderful point. I can't remember what issue it is, but there's definitely a plot where the MacGuffin is Retreat just trying to find out if there is life on other planets. And the first thing that I thought of was, you've just literally just met aliens. Yes. You were yeah, yeah. literally just in space talking to aliens. Yes. Why are you bothering with this now? You know the answer. Right. But right. but again, it, it sort of speaks to the... Throughout all of this, there's an idea, the, these 12 issues in the annual, there's an idea of... They're, they're just they're churning it out and they're trying to rework ideas. Mm-hmm. And they don't really care about continuity as such. Right. Which is... Which is an interesting thing to say because you'll see as the the issues go on and in fact even 13 to 14 yes very tight continuity between the two of them yeah 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 i mean not Uh, only is there fairly tight continuity but it's almost as if uh which we'll get into when we talk about the issue 
literally they're stuck in a situation where if they have to pay attention to continuity, it all but makes sense that the Fantastic Four have to become kind of the greatest superheroes on Earth. You know what mm. I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so I yeah, there's definitely let's let's talk though if you don't mind let's yeah, talk no, no, about let, it. Let, let's get into issue thirteen. Issue thirteen is uh, Fantastic Four. Sorry, the Fantastic Four versus the Red Ghost and his indescribable super apes. Yeah. Exclamation point. And the first thing I want to say about this is uh, Steve Ditko's inks over Jack Kirby are wonderful, oh, and I God, wish this happened mm-hmm. so much, so many more times. That uh, in particular. The Kirby Ditko thing, yes, is just amazing. Yeah, yeah, it it is is inhuman in a way that other inkers don't manage over Kirby. Yeah, it's and, and, right. and overall the art for these twelve issues is very variable because oh, the inkers yeah. change, and by the time you get to George Klein in the end, mm-hmm. it it I mean it looks it looks like a different penciler, never mind a different inker. Oh, definitely, definitely. I mean, there's a there's a really interesting transition that happens, like right around the time of like 19 or 20, you've got Dick Ayers uh, inking him, and then it moves into George Bell, and Kirby sort of starts be looking. Um, kind of more flat in a, in a way that I sort of associate with what ends up becoming like the Fantastic Four cartoons that get shown on, on Saturday morning cartoons, yeah. you know, yeah. just a very sort of um, uh, kind of sanded off almost um, simpler style. And it's mm-hmm. phenomenal seeing something like issue 13, where, like you said, Ditko does amazing things, especially with Ben Grimm as the, thing who looks like you said completely inhuman utterly recognizable and yet really honestly sort of the um one of the few times that i actually think of the thing as as being terrifying looking you know yes yeah in part because of what he does with the eyes yes Mm -hmm. Uh, he manages to recess the eyes so the eyes are always in shadow and there's no visible pupil Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is a a very simple trick yeah, but a great trick, and it really does emphasize, especially when he, because I feel he also plays up Kirby's tendency to give the thing, and this sounds ridiculous, but a ridiculously large mouth. Mm, mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. uh, and so you you do end up with the thing being this monster who is recognizable enough as human-like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but wrong in enough ways that you don't read him as a human. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, agreed, and and it's it's perhaps unsurprising considering how much Kirby and Ditko really led the Marvel Monster Magazine charge leading mm-hmm. up to the the sort of rebirth of Marvel as a superhero publisher. But um, but it's fascinating nonetheless, and and no less so because the character still looks. Um, Thing like, yeah, exactly, yeah, 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 yeah. really, just a fascinating thing. Uh, no pun intended, which we will be making that pun nine million times per it's episode. Like, warning. At, at no point will it be intentional, so we apologize to you right now, listeners. Yeah, so, uh, in case you haven't li- read it, listeners, issue 13, uh, the Fantastic Four versus the Red Ghost and his indescribable super apes is. It's it's pretty much exactly what the title says. Absolutely, and it, it's it it's, lives up to that banner, and, and then goes so far beyond. I mean, oh, and that's yeah. where I think that it is really Lee and Kirby doing the stuff 
that is that is just jaw dropping because it's sort of one thing where you get uh issues that we'll see later and that I sort of complained about before where it's like the FF versus the Submariner and what they're really um, fighting is a bunch of underground, you know, underwater sea monsters or the, an amazing collection of, um, you know, aquatic fish that the Submariner has at his disposal. And it's one thing, and it's another thing altogether, when it's the Red Ghost and their indescribable super apes, but it also happens to take place on the blue area of the moon, which is inhabitable and watched over by the Watcher. Who you know. makes his first appearance in this issue? This exactly. issue is so much. Uh, there's so much sort of Marvel groundwork being laid down here again yes. in this very offhand slapdash mm-hmm. way, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is is fascinating to see now because you know this is like the blue area of the moon, the Watcher, the the Watcher's uh, ha- home, and you, I have to ask. Did you get the same feeling of, oh, look, it's all those scenes from Uncanny X-Men number 137? You know, I I have to split it in half because on the one hand, yes, I absolutely did. And I think it's amazing how much, looking back on it, how great Uncanny X-Men 137 did of capturing all the sort of the cool stuff that's the blue area of the moon. But also, like, it specifically lifts two scenes Mm. almost entirely from this issue. Yeah, uh, yes. Uh, well, the the stumbling into the house of the Watcher, right? Yes, uh, which Wolverine Man then passes through exactly the same uh, places that the Red Ghost does in oh, this that's issue. Great, like it's exactly the same, which was jaw dropping to me when I realized it because I've never read this comic before. Oh, and really? I, I've oh, read one thirty seven many times, right? Um, but also the uh, Jean Grey's death is weirdly predicted. In the scene where uh, Sue is basically hit by a weapon that turns her visible, mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, the staging of that is the mysterious weapon that kills Jean Grey, right? That comes out of the area. Well, yeah. you know, it's kind of funny that you mentioned that because I, I thought of that a little bit. But the thing that really struck me here, uh, perhaps because you know, we read it relatively recently, reread recently and discussed it, uh, is Jim Shooter's Secret Wars. There's a huge chunk of this that is Secret Wars in that the Watcher basically takes these two groups of people, throws them into this area and makes them fight. Yeah. And And one of the things that's very interesting to me that is very similar is in Secret Wars, there's a lot of the villains and the heroes exploring the environment, setting booby traps and using the environment against each other um, Mm. in a way that is a huge chunk of the chapter, you know, duel in the dead city that's right here in FF 13. So um, it was really interesting to me having, you know, I have read this issue sort of loved on it, loved it as its own thing. Cause really, honestly, as a comic book, it kind of has, everything in it oh you know? as as an issue it's definitely my favorite fantastic four issue so far that we've read mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's because it really does have everything everything from the you know it's laying all the groundwork for the 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 marvel mythology it's got the amazing kirby dick art it has <laughs> stanley's uh communist paranoia mm-hmm. it in in spades yeah to, oh, to yeah. an amazing level mm-hmm. um but it also has the goofiness of 
He's trained apes. Oh yeah, he's trained. You know, apes. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but also the apes are then analogs of the Fantastic Four. Yes, which is weirdly sort of metatextual. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh yeah, they, they essentially get the same powers. Mm-hmm. 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 Uh, in in different ways, but they essentially have the same powers, and it, it's yeah, there, there's. It is dumb and smart at the same time in a way that both seem utterly subconscious. Yes. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, all of it is moving forward so quickly. But yeah, I think whereas today, um, in fact, the, the some comic book that I was looking at, it was, it was very hard for me not to push the meta text sort of right up to the front and be like, well, okay, obviously this is deliberate. Here it does seem much more accidental. I mean... As you and I will talk about, there there are other aspects in in this run of the Fantastic Four where it's all but suggested that, like, without Reed, Ben, Sue, and Johnny are kind of basically apes. Uh, and so it is kind of weird to see this little event where the, th- you know, the three super apes all have powers to sort of match the Fantastic Four to differing degrees. Well, and so does Red Ghost. As does the Red Ghost. Yes, exactly. He essentially turns into the Invisible Girl, which in itself, and again, how much of this was intentional, how much of this was subconscious, I don't know, but manages to feel both like Stan Lee and Jack Kirby's sick burn on communists (laughs) and this like weirdly, I don't know, homophobic or or something that has homophobic undertones. Right, right. Do you know what I mean? Like there's something about the, well, we'll give him the girl's power. (laughs) <laughs> you know i i don't know it's it's sexist it's homophobic i don't know there's something about it that sat really uneasily with yeah. me about about the sue storm red ghosts analogy uh you know it's true it, it it is weird um yeah i oh all of this stuff is just it's such a great issue and again it's a little bit like this huge almost quantum leap forward uh in terms of what Lee and Kirby can do with the book, kind of followed by a quantum leap back in the next issue, you know, like, <laughs> yes, yeah, it's, it's so funny. So I, I, I read issue 13 and I was totally fired up mm-hmm. because I, I, I think you remember that I was not, you know, issue 12 was not a great one for me. The, the, the Hulk issue mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. kind of left me cold. And honestly, the, the impossible man issue kind of left me a bit cold as well. Yes. So issue 13 was like, this is, you know, Holy crap! They, you know, whatever they were doing in those last couple of months, they have totally come back and they're on fire. Yeah. And then issue fourteen comes along and it's just terrible. Yeah, 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 yeah. Issue fourteen is actually pretty rough. I think it's pretty dire. Yeah, yeah, it uh, totally is. And, and one, what's wonderful about it is the title of the issue of the story. Mm-hmm. Manages to sum up like the the uh, the Red Ghost issue manages to sum up like holy shit everything's in here. The title of this uh, of issue fourteen manages to sum up everything about it, including why it's terrible. Mm-hmm. The title is once again the Fantastic Four face the threat of Submariner and the Merciless Puppet Master. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And even that sounds like really. Yeah. Rehash. Uh huh. Uh huh. And it is so rehashy, rehashy. I mean, it is just the to me the best parts of it are 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 the the quiet parts around the main story. Yeah, of which there's a lot. 
like there's a lot of vamping. Like by the time you get to, oh, there's a lot of vamping even at the opening of this the story. Oh they yeah, lands yeah, and they're you know they're mobbed by by the public and or companies that wish to hire the Fantastic Four. Which again, falling on from what we were talking about last time, mm-hmm. by now the Fantastic Four are very much celebrities. Oh yeah, yeah yeah yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like it is it is been a relatively so slow build but by the time they come back to earth at the start of issue 14 mm-hmm. you know there's there's no turning back from this now mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. do you know what i mean like they're they're just they're big they're celebrities they have been accepted by the world yes um, well yeah and it's not <coughs> it's not mentioned by it's not mentioned in the book mm-hmm. uh, but it's really interesting to me that this happens in a submariner issue because technically this is the submariners doing because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. if you think about it, the last time they were not celebrities. Last, you know, right. Th- th- this was not working out. It was the Submariners movie that turned that around. That is very funny. That is very funny. Well, I I was actually thinking about it, and I mean, you know, as I think Reed points out on like, or maybe Johnny points out on page two or three, they are literally the first people on Earth to come back from a round trip voyage to the moon. In 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 their continuity, and if you think about it, this creates all kinds of really um, paradoxical splits. You know what I mean? Like if you have a comic that's supposedly ostensibly set in the real world and a comic where continuity matters, like you're in a total, you know, you've kind of made your first real step into Marvel earth is not the same as our earth in like a, in like a really in a big, si- yeah, in a sizable way, because you can say earlier on, like nobody really saw the scrolls. Yeah, or you know, it was only certain people in New York who saw Impossible Man. Exactly. Or Doctor Doom's a hermit, so no one really knows about him. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you say these guys have gone to the moon and come back, and everybody knows it, yeah, you know that is that is a huge that's a huge huge departure point. You know that that the idea is that the first people on the moon were these four people. And of course, considering how much we fawn over our astronauts, like even today, you know, it sort of makes sense that they're going to come back and get this superhero's welcome. <clears throat> that being but, said, but they do and they don't, which is what's kind of mm-hmm. fascinating about it. Oh, well, that's because yeah. they get, they get celebrity welcome. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Right. You have, they come back, they've just returned from the moon. Mm-hmm. And the thing is <laughs> essentially met by someone who's like, my wrestler will beat the shit out of you. <laughs> and Sue Storm is met by someone who's saying, sign my contract and you can advertise deodorant. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's a very odd reception. Also, what's super weird about that like three-page scene mm-hmm. is no one meets, no one creates a human torch, mm. which is, is really telling to me because, as I was saying last time, the Human Torch for me is still the point of view character. Yeah. Right. And it feels important that the Human Torch doesn't have his temptation that he can turn down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. this scene is pretty much a rehearsal for something that's coming up in a couple of issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But he isn't given an out yet. Mm. Because it allows the reader to imagine their own out. Imagine what the Human Torch will be offered themselves. Right. And so keeps them alive that little bit longer as a point of view character. Well, I I also sort of wonder the extent to which, um, 
you start with the Fantastic Four having Johnny Storm, the teenage character, as sort of the the point of view character. And then as the book goes on, it very quickly becomes a book with a teenager's point of view. You know what I mean? Like, I I really feel that um, if you look at the super early issues of of the Fantastic Four, and they're kind of, they're grim, they're monstrous, and no pun intended, you know, that, that there's a, a sense of, of just real darkness in there that you kind of are like, well, okay, it's because they're coming from the aspect of trying to create a superhero magazine from their strong monster magazine background, trying to create mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. that can sort of have a foot in both camps. And yet I also sort of wonder, you know, arguably when the Fantastic Four rolls around, um, the rumors, if I remember correctly, are that Martin Goodman is thinking about closing down, closing shop on Atlas slash Marvel. Uh, that it's just, isn't it's been, you know, it's been it managed to eke out an existence, but it's not exactly been profitable enough. And he's just thinking about like packing it in. And I, I think, I wonder the extent to which Stan Lee when you come when he starts the fantastic four is operating from a very uniquely dark and bitter place for for stan you know mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. there is a lot of stuff there that is about toiling away for like decades with no attention no reward and just feeling like a essentially a monstrous reject you know and then as this thing catches on and becomes huge, you know, Stanley's sort of natural, you know, hail fellow bonami plus that kind of, you know, charming, you know, one of the few people who can make such rampant egotism seem charming, you know, <laughs> really kicks in. And what you get is, to me, sort of a very strange... um mix of kind of the point of view of of your quote-unquote average teenager you know what i mean like where you're in that period where you you simultaneously want to be adored for your 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 uniqueness but you also feel completely shunned and you have this desire to fit in but it's also that desire is kind of repugnant you know, and you're upset and angry at things, but you also feel that you have this really good heart and you're just very misunderstood, you know, and that's that's kind of where the FF are at. I mean, it seems very uh, unbalanced, you know, in every individual issue because you do have these scenes where the Fantastic Four are being fond over, and as you point out, which I, I hadn't really noticed, fond fond over but almost in a in a satirical way in a in a way that 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 you know kind of takes the air out of all the adulation um mm-hmm. but you know but even as that's still becoming the case even when you've got a situation where the thing who is this inhuman looking monster has a girlfriend now 12 issues in um that he that, or 13 issues 14 issues in that he wants to bring along on adventures which is just a uh, Let's oh yeah, but yeah, by the time right we get to the that. annual, we'll talk about that. Yeah. But um but there but there is really this sort of strong I think those those very twin desires are are these sort of 
very youthful, you know, in a very pure way, you know. It it's become a very this is the most soap operatic of the issues. Mm, definitely. To date. Mm-hmm. It, it, in so many ways. You have the Sue Submariner, you know, forbidden romance. Oh my god. Moments. Which is the you, best. You have <clears throat> the return of the puppet master mm-hmm. in a hilarious offhanded Ah, he didn't really die. Wait. <laughs> anyway, like he actually has a thumble in and says, Those fools thought that the fall killed me months ago, but how wrong they were. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Which is just like, yeah, we didn't really kill him. And after establishing the Puppet Master as such a threat in his first appearance, mm-hmm. his return engagement is hilariously underwhelming. Yeah. Um, and and to the point where, you know, sure, he's been sitting in a sanatorium, sanatorium because he's been trying to, you know, hide from the world and come up with his new plan. But maybe he actually needed to stay there after all, because this this is a, a seriously tired and underwhelmed man who comes out. Yeah. I can control anyone. What am I going to do to get back at the Fantastic Four? Will I control them and make them fight amongst themselves and maybe kill each other? No, I control the Submariner. Uh, just because. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and there are definitely elements, again, in there, I feel, where um, where the the... The storytelling, if you look at the visual storytelling, to me, it seems pretty clear that Kirby is suggesting that the Puppet Master is manipulating both the Submariner and the Fantastic Four to get them to fight and be more aggressive to each other and try and wipe each other out. Because it's actually, like, in the art, you have the Fantastic Four as the puppets as well. Yes, exactly. While... While the dialogue says, my revenge will be much sweeter if I do not manipulate the Fantastic Four. Yeah. It's Lee fighting Kirby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, on the page. They, which, he, which he really does. There's a, there's a number of things that Lee does not feel comfortable with. And it is fascinating the extent to which uh, it comes out in almost capricious ways. Sometimes it, it does come in handy. But in this one in particular, I think it would have been more useful to get the sense that the Submariner and the FF are escalating until they manage to break free of the Puppet Master's control, as opposed to it being sort of a, eh, just a little more of a wash, you know? Yeah, exactly. It, it seems very uh, unfair, mm-hmm. uh, the conflict. Mm-hmm. If it is the Submariner is mind-controlled and he's up against the Fantastic Four, who are not. Yeah, do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. you already expect the Submariner to lose. Mm-hmm. And so having him mind-controlled, and for that matter, fighting that control, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. doesn't yes. bring an extra element of drama to it at all, which I think is what Lee was hoping, mm-hmm. but just kind of makes it all have an era of, who cares? Right, right. So big deal. Yeah, there, there is a little bit of that. It, uh, to me, it also makes a lot more se- sense, or at least some sense, if the thing suspects that he's being manipulated or controlled and decides to bring on bring Alicia Masters along rather than whatever the reason is that he's oh, like because he, he just can't stand to see her cry. <laughs> that that is that is the reason. That is the reason he gives. Wow. He's basically like, okay, I'm gonna go and rescue uh my teammate who's in trouble and right. she's in danger. And Alicia's like, oh don't go and he's like, what you're crying? I'll bring you with me. <laughs> Which again 
you know, Stan, if you had spent just maybe more than 30 seconds on that. Right. That might have been great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and it is tough. It really is. It's one of those issues also where the FF spends more time fighting fish than the Submariner, which I think is... But yeah. the end is the end is wonderful, oh, yeah. uh, it, and it, wonderful in particular in light of what happens the next time the Submariner appears. The Submariner, pretty much out of nowhere, is like, "Oh look, I found a map of undersea Earth, and mm-hmm. my people are out there, and I'm going to go and find them." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, Sue says, "Goodbye, Namor. I pray that someday you will lose the bitterness from your heart, and that you might become." Or friend. And Submariner then responds with, friend? That is too mild a word for the Submariner. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Like, Let's be friends. He's like, friend? That's too mild a word. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's what he wants. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Best buds. Let's jump to issue 15, the Mad, the mad Thinker and his awesome android. Oh, uh, which, again, we should uh, say... For me, at least, was another of those. This is great comics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, issue fourteen's a, a, a dud for me, but issue thirteen and issue fifteen are so good. Yeah, I, I like issue fifteen a lot. Um, Even uh, though it does start with the silliest caption on the first page. <laughs> I do love that. The whole idea that the the Mad Thinker's android, which is neither animal nor vegetable nor mineral. Um. What is it? Is what it says after that, which is what I love. Also, really, it's neither animal, vegetable, nor mineral. Are you sure? Yeah. Are you sure that's what it is? (laughs) It's none of those things? Are you sure? (laughs) Again, Stanley and Science. Yeah, Stan. Oh, God. Some of the stuff here with Stanley and Science is. So I I thought, did you notice, which I thought was really interesting, is how pages two and three of this. are very much like the intro to Fantastic Four number one. Yes. Uh, you know, it's like Johnny's with a car, except he's this time he's with a girl. Sue's getting her hair done, and she turns invisible just to avoid people see her. But Ben is totally repositioned here as comic relief, as opposed yes. to... Yes. All of them are subtly repositioned. Mm-hmm. It's true. Because uh, Johnny is, is repositioned as a romantic lead. Yes. Which is, is, you know, when when the series starts, Johnny pretty much has no time for girls. Mm-hmm. He exists for his car and to be a member of the Fantastic Four. Yeah. And now he's someone who has broken lots of dates because of his superhero career, which, you know, he really wants to go out with Peggy, but this superhero career keeps coming up and that's how dedicated he is. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a really subtle, but I, I think really telling image of how, what they have done to Johnny, how, mm-hmm. how they have changed him from the original. Mm-hmm. The, you then get the, the Sue Storm scene, mm-hmm. which, I don't know, there's something about it that domesticizes her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which is, you know, it's, what was she doing in the first issue? I think she was just like buying clothes. Oh, but somehow uh, this is more, what was she doing in the first I, I, I want to say she was having tea. Wasn't she like a socialite or something like that at someone's place? And, and someone like looks out the window. She was. Like, she was. She yeah. was, uh, quote, having tea with a society friend. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but now she's getting her hair done. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and as a celebrity, su- such a celebrity, in fact, that the hairdresser at the, quote, Shishi Beauty Parlor on Fifth Avenue... <laughs> Has cancelled all his other appointments. That's so right. He devoted himself entirely on her. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, right. So of course it's called Pierre. Pierre, of course. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, the characters have changed. And, of course, by the time they come back, uh, you know, again, this is one of those things where I think that uh, Lee and Kirby are cross-purposes because I think Kirby's, like, I would suspect that in Kirby's plot, Reed summons everyone back and is like, holy shit, I've created artificial life. It's amazing. And then, like, at that moment, you cut to, like, the dudes in the car, you know, the mad thinker predicting when they're going to walk in the door. And then it kind of goes on from there, and it sort of leads to the legwork of, to me, the extra bit of the mad thinker that is kind of cool is he's actually predicted sort of down to the moment when Reed Richards has created artificial life and that's why he's chosen this time to actually yes. invade the Baxter building. Yes. Which you know? totally makes sense given what happens in the second half of the story. Exactly. But as it, opposed to the way Lee plays it, which is hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The I'm so, not gonna so, disappoint the chief of police again. <laughs> yeah, so so for those who are not reading along, Lee plays it as Reed has summoned everyone there in an emergency and they're like what's going on and while the art is quite clearly look i've i've created life mm-hmm. reed pretty much is like in fact he says i didn't want to interrupt what i was doing any more than you did exactly. i've been right in the middle of a crucial experiment with dna the basic cells which are the building blocks of life itself yeah i've already managed to create a primitive form of one celled life which lived for a few seconds. Also, he's holding up this thing that was quite clearly not one cell. Like he's holding up like a fish. <laughs> yes, exactly. And he goes, "Do you think I feel like stopping now?" But I received an urgent call from the chief of police, which is ridiculous. Like yeah. it really is. Wait, so Reed didn't want to be interrupted, but you know he's got enough time to explain this to everyone else. Yes. It, it it does make no sense. I I think you're right. I think Kirby clearly intended it to be, "Hey, you guys." I brought you back here to see that I've done this. I've done this amazing thing. Um, and, and then, because again, there's that idea of like, I, I summoned you back here because of the mad thinker and we have, you know, and then they proceed not to look for him, which is, which is again, just that kind of strange, like really left uh, dangling. So, um, but then there's, there is a lot of the, the issue, which has so many really wonderful pieces and great bits of Kirby storytelling and, and even some decent laugh lines by Lee really is very uh, slapdash because you get the oh, appearance. There's, of... there's so much in this that's hilarious. The mm-hmm. Mad Thinker, I, I love him as a character in this much more than I, I love like his current incarnation. Oh yeah, where I think they play up like the Mad part. Yes. Whereas here he's just this incredibly precise, yeah, uh, strategist whose schemes are wacky as hell. Mm-hmm. In particular, the part where he's oh like, God. remember I got that Arkin Riders mask? <laughs> I, was, I wasn't going to mention that. The, the panel of the organ grinder's monkey holding the lit match and setting fire to paper is just one of my favorite all-time panels. Uh, yeah. you know? also, but of course, in Kirby and Lee's dialogue, the organ grinder's monkey would accidentally start a fire in a deserted shack. Mm-hmm. Which is just, again... I don't, there's part of me like, I don't think you understand how anything works. Then. <laughs> because for the Mad Thinker's powers to work the way that they work in this comic, the way that Lee describes, yes, he has to actually be able to tell the future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because he predicts accidents. Mm-hmm. 
Exactly. He doesn't make things happen. He pre- that's what he does. He predicts accidents yeah. all the way through. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So it, it's it's one of those things which I think is sort of uh, I don't know if I was more hmm, on top of my game, uh, I, we could I would I would blab on and on and on about how the Mad Thinker his his concept of the world as this essentially um i want to say copernican but that's probably not right uh newtonian universe where everything is if you know all the variables you can predict everything uh you know is already um in the process of slowly being undone by the things that you know aren't really that accessible to the layman in the, in 63, but you know, quantum physics is, is well on its way. And it has a lot of very disturbing things to say about uncertainty. Um, but I'm kind of fascinated, which I didn't really realize until now, the way to which the mad thinker and especially Dr. Doom and maybe even some of, the Fantastic Four's other villains, if you if you look at them, um, represent a concept of literally the old world and old world thinking. You know that that they they come from a universe from the 18th or 19th century that is very fatalistic, where everything is all spelled out, and where there mm-hmm. are, in the cases of someone like Doctor Doom, these very inherent concepts of um you know just royalty and there's a lot of you know sort of foreign kingdoms the puppet master is clearly represents a a kind of um you know immigrant experience kind of you know Mm. well it's it's very interesting as well that if you look at the the thinker's scheme Mm -hmm. which again is is visualized Mm -hmm. he sees himself as royalty yes he doesn't see himself just as a ruler. He sees himself as royalty. Yeah, right. And this is the second time we've seen this in the series because the Puppet Master did exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. And Doctor Doom is royalty. Yes. So you have this uh, inherent distrust of of a system in which... Of basically like something other than the American dream. Yes. Something other than anyone can do what they want. Anyone can do what they put their minds to it. Yeah, yeah. In many ways, and I'm 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 hijacking your idea yeah. to say that I think the Fantastic Four, in many ways, and not intentionally on the part of its creators, mm-hmm. uh, is a reaction to even the 20th century mm-hmm. and the idea that there is necessarily a set order of things mm-hmm. in general. Because you have the thinker, who, as you said, is essentially if A plus B, then C. Right. Which which is his gimmick, mm-hmm. um, and you have the chaos that is the Fantastic Four. Yes, undoing it basically by being like, "Hey, you can't predict everything, right? You know, uh, there is uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Uh, shit will happen, right? What what are you gonna do? Yeah. Uh, and so you have, and uh, you know, given how wonderfully Stanley is shown to be understanding science in every other aspect of this. <laughs> it's not like he was like, maybe there is going to be such a thing. But you right. have the, uh, the Fantastic Four accidentally predicting mm-hmm. a world where there is an uncertainty principle. Well, where where there, is, there is... You can't... Uh, not that there's no cause and effect, per se, 
mm-hmm. but you can't predict that you know if this happens then this will automatically happen well let me re-hijack this and, and... that's great we're, it's, it, we're just batting it between ourselves <laughs> exactly. we're batting it between ourselves <laughs> and suggest that the, that the Fantastic Four actually represent chaos and and, yeah, that, no, they, and that they that's are that's where the, I was going yeah, yeah the chaos and, and that it is the chaos of that the American dream is itself an inherently chaotic one, as you as you point out. There's not an ex, any con, you know preconceived from the top down, but what actually seems incredibly messy and terrifyingly chaotic ends up resolving itself into essentially the American dream. That that all of these characters who start off as shunned monsters in the first issue are become ideal Americans, you know, by this point in the storyline, they literally are heroes and celebrities. And even the thing himself, you know, is a a monster and an outcast and a reject that is nonetheless, um, you know, ridiculously successful and famous. And, and so there is a kind of, there's a celebration of chaos, um, that sort of seems to suit, the incredible slapdashness of these of these issues that we're reading. Well, you know? uh, what's really funny is you know the, that's that that's what the story rests on. The, yes. the the thinker comes up with this grand scheme, which again is when you start to think about it, is just absolutely nuts. It makes no sense. Yes. But he is undone by, as Reed Richards points out, the unexpected. And so Reed Richards says, "You overlooked one thing in your plans, thinker. There is always an X factor to prepare for." The unexpected. Yes. Now, what is particularly amusing about this is, A, he's illustrating the point that we're making. <laughs> yes. But B, what Reed Richards then goes on to explain is the opposite of what he's talking about. Yes. Because what he then says is, I prepared for this thing. <laughs> this <laughs> exactly. thing that you can't prepare for. I prepared for it, and that's yes. why I won. Right. Right. Exactly. And and according to the rules of the storyline, as I feel like someone like Kirby has set forward, um he would lose the mad thinker would have considered that, that that it has a lot more to do with um the idea that that the human heart the fact that woolly lumpkin or or whomever makes it a point to check in with them that ends up you know defeating him exactly there there's a uh, again an alternate reading from the from the written text if you just look at the art mm-hmm. there's a reading that everything that lee says is true with the exception of Reed didn't plan for Willie Lumpkin yes. to press that button. Mm-hmm. But instead, Willie doing that accidentally mm-hmm. changed everything. Exactly. And, and so you are, you are getting into a much more humanistic mm-hmm. level of you can be as smart as you want, mm-hmm. but essentially the kindness of people is going to be the undoing of evil people. Yeah, exactly. Because you will never be able to predict for it. I mean, that's, you know, because evil people don't really believe that it exists, you know, and, and because it is in that sense, it is a variable. No, I mean, it's it's really kind of this amazing thing, but it is it is so far beyond easy encapsulation that instead we mm-hmm. get this other, this completely different message to it. Yeah, um, which, which is so close, but... Uh, it's Lee doing what Lee does, which is I can't miss up this. Like I can't. This can't be random. I right. have to make my heroes look smart. Yes, exactly. 
Exactly. And so it's very much this idea of like, oh, no, Reed had accounted for this this absolute other thing. Yeah, rather but than, this other thing, yeah. which Reed is arguing in the text, yes. is unaccountable for. Right. Exactly. Yeah, it's... Uh, which, which I love. It's I, kind we, of a hash. We've actually kind of skipped over something I want to talk about, which is this is... So in issue 14, the Fantastic Four come back to Earth, and you have different actors trying to break up the Fantastic Four by getting the thing into wrestling, by mm -hmm. uh, Reed's getting overwhelmed by his fan club, and by Sue being offered a modeling contract. That's right. In issue 15, mm -hmm. they return to this idea, except it's successful. Yes. Uh, Johnny gets offered, and I, this is endlessly hilarious to me, Johnny yes. gets offered the chance to join a circus, which mm -hmm. makes him so excited. <laughs> Also, it's by his family, who are an impossibly tall man and an impossibly short man. Yes, yes, shorty and bones. It's hilarious, and yeah. they're called yeah, uh, yeah, cousin bones and shorty. Think, yeah. yeah, just shorty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is absolutely hilarious to me. That yeah. it gets him so excited. He's like, "Fuck this!" You know, <laughs> it's being an explorer thing. I want to join the circus. That's right, awesome. Right. Um, meanwhile. The thing gets uh, offered the chance to wrestle again. Mm -hmm. And Sue again gets offered the chance to be in a Hollywood movie. Yes. But this time they accept. Mm -hmm. uh, and obviously they accept because of the plot. <laughs> right. right. Like, you know, why did they turn it down last month but accept this month? Because the plot requires them to. But it, I wonder how much of that is Lee and or Kirby thinking... Oh, we we dealt with that far too quickly. Could we be right. We should go back to it. We should go back to it. Well, there there is the the slightest little node of an idea that doesn't pay off. Um, that by making Shorty and Bones <laughs> Johnny's two cousins, but not Sue, somehow um, the idea on, on the other side of the family. Come on, right, <laughs> right. Of course, that's that's the way siblings work, right? <laughs> of course. Absolutely. Uh, there's the guy side of the family and the girl side of the family. I, there, there's just this... There, there's almost an idea that the difference here, and again, I think would be kind of interesting, although it would defeat what I was saying, is, is the idea that the mad thinker knows that this is going to work this time because some of these offers that are being made... That uh, an emotional level will help people. Yeah, the the idea that I think is interesting is is that there's a lot there's a sort of a to do being made on the idea that Johnny is that they need Johnny in order to save their circus, and so Johnny's excited to do it. But then there's also very much this idea of like no no no, but we need you, you know. And the idea that the on the one hand it might be interesting to have a world in which you've got the mad thinker who's able to use some sort of rudimentary idea of of manipulating people via um, via their need to be kind or to help out others. Um, but it certainly doesn't really play out on, on what happens with the rest of them. And of course, when it's time for the Human Torch to leave, he's like, fuck that. And I'm like, but what about Shorty and Bones' circus? Are they okay? Did he's they make done, he's enough done money? a really good job, okay? He's got, he's got their back up. People yeah. are excited. For that, apparently one performance that yeah, he did. Exactly. However many there were. It was like, that was all that was needed. And I was like, man, if Shorty and Bones just come back with, like, lead pipes to beat the shit out of Johnny, like, five episodes from now, we should not be surprised. Um, uh, also, we entirely skipped over the awesome android. 
Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, which, which is great. I really like the awesome android. Oh, do you? Uh, yeah, I, I think he's... I think he's a great idea, and unsurprisingly, an idea never developed. Yeah. It's never again mentioned that, guess what? Reed has actually created something that is living. Mm-hmm. 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 Never mind Franklin. This is your first child, Reed. <laughs> well, you get the sense that... I thought I got the sense that the Mad Thinker had whipped I, I, it up. I think, yeah, he did yeah, actually. It, like, created the, by the Thinker research. from his own notes. Exactly. Yeah. So... I don't know. You know, it's funny because I really think that this is an issue where, as happens a lot with um, the Fantastic Four issues, is you've got a primary threat, then you then you all but have a secondary threat, and then you even get a tertiary threat. And this is this is like a not only do you have you've got the Mad Thinker, then you've got the FF versus their own building, which is pretty great. Um, mm-hmm. And and I definitely feel like the FF versus the superpowered fortress becomes its own trope as the issues go on, you know? Um, And then, and then you have the Android, but by the time the Android appears on the scene, I mean, it is, it's page it's, he appears at the bottom of page 17. Sure. And, and and you're kind of done at that point. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it just ramps up and up and up and up and up, which I think is very much, you know, again, that sort of thing that you can see with Kirby where you just, throws so many things at you and then when it's time to get them resolved he's kind of like eh, i don't know what's the what's the most deus ex machina e that we can get here so as as much as i love the idea of the android the fact that he basically looks like a giant clam in shorts uh and his powers seem to be that he can do anything and nothing uh, you know, he's kind of, it's kind of, he's definitely an underdeveloped concept. Let's put it that way. And, and I almost <laughs> feel like as far as I know, paying attention, it's, I don't really feel if I remember correctly, they basically go on to do something very similar by, you know, anthropomorphizing, anthropomorphizing him further into Dragon Man and, you know, having, having a much of the same beats play out with Dragon yes, Man, yes. but with uh, well, a little well, more of a... Yeah, the other thing is, because the android comes up so late in the story, and there is no real estate for him, he, yes. he, there's essentially a page worth of uh, android action. Right. Um, the He is both an awesome threat, mm-hmm. by which I mean a threat full of awe, because he can do anything, like you said, Yeah, and just amazingly the opposite... Because how do they beat the the android? They turn him off. Yeah, exactly. Which, which again makes no sense because he's been built by the thinker, and yet Reed knows where the off switch is. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's so many problems with it. I mean, there's even the idea of an android. Why would an android even be like you can't turn off an android? That's part of why they're an android. They're an artificial. Well, not only that. Why know? would an android need DNA? Ooh. See, right, we're just going down those sort of lists of things that are just like, huh? Yeah, there's so much of, this doesn't really make sense, but the story is so good that you really do just follow along. You're you're just barreled along by it, which is uh, something that you can't say for the next couple of issues. (laughs) Oh, so I was going to say, so you were not down with the uh, the micro world of Doctor Doom issue 16? No, and I should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's Doctor Doom who is wonderful, and it's the microverse, which I love as a concept. Yes. 
Um, but no, I think it is. It, it. I don't know if it is just they had a, a period where they were on again, off again in terms mm-hmm. of quality. But I think it's a, a really weak issue. Oh, it's it's really weak. It's really weak. I mean, it's. I actually enjoyed the micro world of Doctor Doom for a few things, uh, and and not the least of which is actually um, the. At one point, the FF are put in a, a um, under underwater fortress uh, surrounded by fish, and of course, it's pointed out that it's not water that they're surrounded by; it's acid, and that the fish aren't living; they're like they're robots. robot fish that yes. are keeping track of them. And that seems so ridiculously over the top. But as a kid, I remember being completely haunted. Oh, because you're totally like, that's, oh, oh my God. Yeah. That's amazing. It's no, that's acid. Oh, God, those are robots. <laughs> right. Shit. Dr. Doom's really, really, you know, he's up the ante here. Right. Right. Also, I could be wrong, but isn't that Ness issue? Uh, which issue? Which? No, no, this is this is definitely this issue. What happens is um, this issue's where Ant-Man comes up and pours the crap out of everyone. And again, it's this. Oh, you're, you're totally right. It is yeah. I've had it on page 16. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So it's like. Okay, so for for did those people, say, did you say Anman comes up and pours the shit out of everyone? Well, he does. Like, come on, <laughs> that, that's a great way of putting it. It is the most underwhelming special guest star issue imaginable. Yeah, yeah. Isn't let's that, face it. It is it so is, bad. It is, it is. If they have an issue where they're like, we've come up with such winners of characters, and now he's Anman to prove that even we can fuck it up. Oh man, it's to me. I think it is great. The idea that that Ant Man is is. Even if ever there was a character on whom Stanley's hyperbole does not work, it's like <laughs> here the mighty Ant Man will show. He'll show up and get his ass handed to him by a bunch of secondhand henchmen clowns. Like you know, the most amazing thing about about the Ant Man in this issue is that it's 1963 and he has basically set up a Google alert for his name. Across a network of ants, such yeah, exactly. that whenever it's a Google ant alert, which is so great. It's just like whenever anyone says Ant Man, oop, there goes the ant to let him know. And I'm just like, okay, everyone should have seen the signs back then. Looking back, everyone should have known that Hank Pym was unhinged well, when he well, basically also, spent all of the insect world to make sure that whenever anyone mentioned no, him, no, no, they found out about it. There's something else that he did that was absolutely crazy, which is his way of then getting to the Baxter building after he hears that he's being talked about. Oh, yeah, that's right. Which is he shoots himself out of a cannon yeah. so that he then lands on two ants that will carry him to the Baxter building. <laughs> <laughs> that's how he does it. When you see that, you th- suddenly feel so much more grateful for the uh, DC Silver Age Atom who traveled through telephone lines. Traveled like, through telephones. And, and you're like, somehow... oh, well, that, sure, that's great. Yeah. Just, like, launching yourself at a cannon, hoping that you're going to land on two ants? <laughs> Riding the two flying ants like a Roman chariot, the astonishing costumed figure enters a w- open window noiselessly. <laughs> yeah. I, I appreciate also, Lee being like, what's the most dynamic way that we can, why do, you know, you're always counting on it being open. I just, <laughs> those poor motherfucking ants, too. You're just flying around, and then suddenly somebody's fat little feet lands right in the middle of your fucking spine. Good thing you're flying in pairs. I don't know. I it, it, Listeners, if you like comics 
that are so goofy they are insane. Uh, issue 16, <laughs> no, The Micro World of Doctor Doom. This is not insane enough. That's the problem. Okay, Graham. If this issue had been just a little bit more nuts, it would have been entertaining. Okay. It, it's it's a subtle form of insanity. But it's a of... boring form of insanity. That's the thing. Graham, this story opens up with the human torch showing up to find out why nobody had responded to his signal and finds all of the FF tiny and about to get sucked up into a vacuum. And then sure. when he... No, it no, no, no. no. exciting, but it's not. Oh, no. It's not exciting. It's ridiculous because the best part is... All of the Fantastic Four have had earlier flashbacks, experiences, which they recount in flashback, of <laughs> shrinking that they don't tell anyone. This is totally the, if you want to know where Steve Martin's Let's Get Small routine came wait, from. Wait. You, you are forgetting, you're not mentioning my favorite scene in the entire comic, which is when Sue Storm decides that the only things that can find her when she's invisible are dogs. So what if she gets sent that will make her invisible to dogs? Only for dogs to find her. Yes. God knows why there are four dogs in the Baxter building. Oh my God. I could come out of nowhere to find her. See? But there are. Graham, this is what I'm saying. These people, (laughs) none of them want to mention to each other that they... Got sh- they shrank like these people are so delusional and or getting so high that they are they are marking off experiences where they turn tiny as in oh maybe I was just imagining it and with Sue Storm it happens on fucking television she actually has proof that it happened that is verifiable and she's still not telling anyone I mean this story this thing is this issue is awesome for like you said it is it is dull. Um, it is so weirdly dull. It is unbelievably that. boring. That's the crazy thing. <laughs> it's 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 really boring. There's so much stuff in there where it's like there's a scene with like the Human Torch like toasting hot dogs, and you're like ten pages into the story, you're like, why don't you want to get yeah, started? No, I don't yeah, get that, it. That is really crazily wacky. That he, all of a sudden he's just at a picnic. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, they're they're shrinking. I, the pacing of this issue is really, really strange. It's completely so. It starts crazy. off with the action where they're shrinking, mm-hmm. and they tell Ant Man, and you think, okay, the story's in in process. Like things are happening, mm-hmm. and that's what page eight. Yeah, and then there is vamping, <laughs> and then there's more vamping until page twelve. There's another four pages of he leaves. They're like. Okay, let's go back to doing some stuff. Ben, why don't you lift a piano and I'll make you drink something that will throw your entire spine out. Perfect. Also, yeah, what is with that? I've come up with a formula and I want to test it. Why don't you just drink it? Now. Now. He's like, but I'm holding something. Now, Ben. Now. Yeah, I... I... And then he drops the piano, which is spectacular. It is really, really funny because if you look at the art... He's holding the piano, he drinks it, he turns to Ben Grimm, and he's still holding the piano while all of that is happening. Yes, and then And suddenly, then he drops it. Yeah, exactly. Kind of that, oh shit, I forgot I'm holding a piano with one hand. Exactly, with one hand. Yeah. yeah. So no, anyway, so so the, the Fantastic Four is then shrunk down to the micro world where it turns out that Doctor Doom has been since the last time we saw him, which, if you'll remember, readers, is when uh, he tried to convince everyone that if they shrunk... And then got normal size again, their powers would be stronger. And if that had happened to dinosaurs, they'd be in space. <laughs> Science, ladies and gentlemen. Anyway, so it turns out he's all there all along. 
he then manages to shrink them down. Is that actually ever explained how he does that? Uh, how he manages to get them to shrink down? I forget. I forget I how he I does it. I actually don't think it is. Um, I think they just say it's a shrink ray. That he is somehow managing from the microverse to shrink them, even though they are all in different locations. Well, it, well okay, so here's the thing that's crazy is, is, right, he's shrinking them down, different locations. There's a, there's a really fun backwards thinking to me, because I, I, I get the idea that if we were a small part of some major macroverse above us if we all expanded we would expand up into the same place right but i never get how these characters all shrink down in different areas and then all and end up in exactly the same place. yeah, yeah. In, in some cases it, in make, the exact it makes same palace. no sense yeah yeah uh but but very little about this makes sense uh the one thing i will call out is the doctor doom will turn all of you into slaves yes uh page where they're like, Reed Richards, he'll use you as a bridge. The thing, he'll use you as a miner. Human Torch, he'll use you to set fire to his evil, like his, his opposing, opposing mm -hmm. cities. Uh, Sue Storm, she, he'll use you as a scullery maid. Oh and my god. The picture of Sue Storm in the scullery maid thing is so funny. It's funny, but it is also, I hate to admit what this says about me, Ed is hands down the hottest Sue Storm has ever looked scullery scullery made sue is the hottest sue she she looks great she looks really good yeah jeff, jeff this is not something you want to be saying in, in public <laughs> really i will put this image up on the, the website uh when we post this and people will here's the thing i think people might vaguely say what you're saying mm -hmm. but also no jeff <laughs> no yeah, um, so that happens because basically he's going to sell them into slavery, by the way, which is kind of a weird sort of concept. Um, and again, is that weird area, like by the time you get to the end of the issue, you have your primary villain, which is Doctor Doom, you've got your secondary villain, which is all the bad guys, and then the third, the tertiary threat, which is the landing of the lizard people that, you know, Ben Grimm, like, knocks out of the sky, Um it's just this really interesting way of like, oh, I'm really going to accelerate the 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 stakes, and it's just not like like I said. I love the escape from the poisoned acid area with the robot fish, and I have to say, if people who like Kirby drawing armor, like if you if you like his uh, issues of Thor, the the armor that he draws on. Oh, there's some amazing helmets. Amazing shit. There's some amazing shit. And of course, again, Ant-Man, so lame, shows up, gets the shit beaten out of him by like five guys, does nothing. Um, and yet it is it is kind of great that uh, the helmets of the guys who beat the shit out of him. I'm like, yeah, too bad they can't shrink. I would put them in a series. Jesus. So, yeah, uh, issue 16 is pretty underwhelming. And then I'm trying to think, issue 17, I remember thinking was... Uh, actually a little bit more enjoyable I, at least for it, me. It, it is theoretically the second half yeah theoretically because they do uh, come back and they're like we've got to you know they even wave goodbye to ant-man and are like let's recap and then try and tr track down dr doom yes because dr doom escaped yes uh in the the previous issue which is uh lampshaded as the saying goes by having the thing say at the very end of the issue 
we still haven't got Doctor Doom, remember? So yes. pretty much, you know that what the next issue is going to be. Well, um, I was actually kind of surprised when it was that they were going to hunt down Doctor Doom, you know? Because sometimes they do that, like... The one guy gets away, and they're like, well, we can never rest as long as this guy's here. And then by the next issue, they've forgotten about it. So it is kind of interesting. Well, I, that I feel that so far in, in this series, they put they put the villains out of commission. Yes. Or at least the villains end up out of commission. Maybe not mm-hmm. because of what the Fantastic Four has done. Right. But they do not exist to threat again. Mm. I guess that's uh, and I And so, the, you know, Doctor Room, like, explicitly escapes. Yes. Right. You and know, they and, do and, and is, is no pun intended, still at large. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is, that's an excellent pun, by the way. Thanks. So, yeah. But, so, you know, the, he does, he gets out of the microverse and he is, he's technically actually more likely to cause trouble because the Fantastic Four aren't out of the microverse yet. Right. He's there first. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, there is more of a, uh, to be continued element of it, I think. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think you're right. Oh, in case <clears throat> for people who are big fans of the Micronaut series uh, and think that this sounds awesome, that uh, the FF and Doctor Doom are in the micro, the the actual genuine microverse. Um, you know, two decades before the the toy line came out, it's it's worth pointing out that although I believe it. It's- it's made it's kind explicit. Of a yeah, it looks different. It looks like a very different macroverse, microverse. And although I think, you know, Bill Mantlo very smartly connects the dots on the two later, and then the more you go back to this same microverse, the more there's more micronauty type stuff in it. At this mm-hmm. point, it is pretty much just kind of Kirby generic Fantasy Kingdom 101. So. Yeah. In case anyone's like, oh my god, I have to go and, and get that. That being said, in issue 17, I think it is canon that on page 3, Reed Richards is wearing the actual bra helmet from Weird Science with the uh, Bob Dylan harmonica vacuum cleaner attachment. And that is that is canon. I think that is explicitly that those two are, are joined. So, just so you know. God, I love that bra helmet. I laughed so hard when I saw that on, on, in this issue. So good. Um, <clears throat> again, a weird kind of... Uh, issue 17 has a little bit of the formula. It's kind of like, okay, we're back. Now let's hunt down Doctor Doom with like in, in like the world's most inept ways, you know, which I thought was great. But, you know, really the only interesting thing about it is the way in which... Um, Ben Grimm, it's like, it's almost like a, a scene from FF number one. Ben Grimm bursts through the pavement, a car breaks against him, but instead of the, it's a walking nightmare, everyone, someone actually says, he's so grotesque, he's almost beautiful, which is... Yeah, people are, people are very, very excited. Yeah. Wow, it's the thing, look at that big fella move. Yeah. So, to the point where the idea that these guys are basically the FF... Our front, where it looks like Doctor Doom's master plan is to humiliate them by having giant, giant floating ghosts trail them everywhere, is, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a real departure from what you would have gotten on the first two or three issues of this. It's, mm-hmm. you know, on the one hand, it's, it tries to be a very serious issue, and in fact, I like the way the assault on Doom's skyship is actually 
very serious and pretty action-packed. But right up until that point, which happens around, I don't know, page 14 or so, it's still got more than a touch of goofiness to it. You know what I mean? Um, right down to the fact that Doom wants a post on the president's cabinet. That's part of his demands, which, I mean, Graham, I'm sure you read that and were like, oh my God, where's the Secretary of Agriculture, Doom? <laughs> what if storyline that would have been well, like the best no, no, if ever? No, no, because here's the thing. You know what really got my attention this that I couldn't move past? What? The bit on page five, way back on page five, where Doom is undercover mm-hmm. as the janitor. Oh, yes. Right. I know. So out of character, right? Like, was... well, Doom is undercover as the janitor, and it suggests that Doom, as a janitor, who is a small, hunched-over guy in, like, a Purple dungarees with a beard and a, a, a corn pipe. cob pipe. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, is actually Doctor Doom in his Doctor Doom armor <laughs> with other clothes over it. Because yeah, you then but... see him getting out of his disguise and he's in his armor. Yeah, he's I... taking the beard off oh, of his armor. Yes, so I this know. suggests that Doctor Doom's armor is either a very lifelike if you paint it flesh colored. Mm. Or B, the Fantastic Four are the stupidest human beings on the planet. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Um, <clears throat> it's a tough call. It's a tough call as to which one it actually is, isn't it? So it's it's so so great. Dashing into the nearby broom closets, he removes his overalls, cap, false beard, and face mask. Yes, he's got a face mask. So, yeah, I... I yeah, but you know, he's not wearing gloves. It doesn't say he's wearing I, gloves. I don't know. It's, to me, let's face it, there are some things that I feel are just superhero comic book gimmies. And the fact yeah, is... Yeah, well, that, that is... I mean, that is a massive, massive you one. Just, you just... You can be wearing... If, if you disguise yourself, then you can actually be shorter and your armor will be invisible. Yeah, you can wear six suits of armor underneath a thing of clothes and nobody ever notices ever and i think that's you know because here's the thing even if it even if it looked lifelike would he not clank (laughs) who knows who knows what sound that that um you know there's so much that happens with comics where it's like a noiseless vacuum that you don't even think about but yeah of course i mean the the idea that the janitor is like okay i'll see you then clonk 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 across (laughs) the linoleum floor yeah no i i totally get that i totally get that so um, nonetheless, call me a sucker, but I really did enjoy the sequence where after Ben Grimm and his flying sperm ship impreg- impregnates Doom's floating ova, uh, and breaks in and becomes the thing, like you get the, the FF versus the super traps and, and then things are awesome. I, I, I kind of enjoyed all that. I really it's, did. It's a very... Very, I mean, it's much more entertaining than the previous issue, for sure. Uh, but in, yeah, in, it, in its insanity, yeah. Uh, but again, it's it's a weird, it's a another dud. It, it, it's 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 it pretty just much a falls dud. short again. Yeah. Actually, very much like the previous issue for mm-hmm. everything that is great about it, and mm-hmm. there are lots of things that are great about it. Yeah. Uh, again, like the previous issue, mostly in the this is kind of wacky sense. Right. As opposed to actually good. Right. Uh, but but there is a lot of, there's a lot of things that should be 
more entertaining than they are. It is, it is again, another weirdly dull issue. Yeah, it's dull and it's jammed together. I mean, you actually have a scene where it's the invisible girl makes it a point to lock the door and go one-on-one with Doctor Doom. And... And she wins. And she wins, right? And it's and, and of course Stan Lee being like, "That's because I was taught judo by the world's greatest expert, Reed Richards." I was yeah, like, just, also uh, that just the bit prior to that is where Alicia Masters is crying, and Sue Storm literally takes her place without changing her costume yes. or anything, and Doctor Doom doesn't notice. Yeah. <laughs> Because women, am I right? They right. all look the same. <laughs> they all look the same. Come on, guys. You know what I'm saying. Like, they fill out the sweater. That's all you're really checking out. Could be anyone. So, yeah. Uh, How do you feel about issue 18, A Scroll Walks Among Us? Uh, I I, uh, I liked it enough. I liked it more <laughs> than the last two issues. Right. There are, again, some absolutely wacky things but it feels like they're trying a little bit more, I guess. Mm-hmm. What, there were a few things that sort of leapt out at me, one of which was the uh, Kirby apparently not knowing how people lift things up. Oh, isn't that fascinating? That that whole... I remember as a kid being just hypnotized by that sequence of the Super Scroll, like, basically chaining one of the world blocks to his testicles, and then you're talking about that scene, right? Yeah, yeah, page five, which yeah. uh, he lifts up the cosmic generator. Yeah. Uh, and he does that by actually standing on top of the cosmic generator and pulling, and yet apparently it works. Yeah, I don't know how that would Like, there's some sort of weird, like, the more... I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure Kirby thought... I mean, Kirby, let's face it, a genius, but his own grip on physics kind of came and went. So that's one where at least it's eye-catching. But, um, oh, it's it's it, it's a wonderful page. Yeah. Uh, another thing that I like very much about it is that uh, Reed and Sue are going to Hawaii on an intercontinental ballistics missile. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought that was pretty great. Because you know, sure, that mm-hmm. that's that's going to be a thing that happens. Right. Well, yeah, definitely. But again, I, the Super Scroll is very interesting uh, because he's essentially the Red Ghost again. Yes. Which is the villain has the same powers as the team. Right. Which we've gets back to calls back to the original Skrulls story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which I, I really appreciated. But again, I think it's probably accidental. <laughs> I don't think it's an it's an intentional shout out to the original Skrull story. That's very as funny. much as right. I think that they're just like, How do we you know, like what are we gonna throw at them this time? Yes. Well, they've got the same powers. Yeah. But it's for the third issue, it is the story where what is most entertaining is everything around the main plot as opposed to the main plot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, like the, the Fantastic Four and the shopping trip mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. scene is just wacky. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is wacky. You know, it, mm-hmm. it's just it, crazy in, in the weirdest way. Well, um, Sorry, on you go. No, 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 no. I was, I was actually, because you're right. It sort of is a uh, again. There, it, it's almost a trope of the Fantastic Four versus the crowds, but also a lot of the comedic shenanigans seem like you can all but count on the first ten or eleven pages to be mostly kind of comedic shenanigans and the yes. FF showing off their powers in public. You yes. know, or or at least. 
that or the villain plotting. Yeah. The first half of almost any issue of the Fantastic Four at this point is going to be simultaneously set up and filler. Yeah, set up the and... The story filler. as such is going to take place all in the back half of the issue. Right, right. And I think it's worth pointing out one of the things uh, here when I was reading this <clears throat> is back in the letters page, there's a, a letter from Ron Foss, who was a pretty major figure in comic fandom at the time and, and for some years after, was talking about uh, basically ranting about how entertaining the comics are and sort of how entertaining the characters are um, from issue to issue. And, it, and there is something to say, like, even though I find myself being kind of I did find myself being bored and restless or I did find them sort of treading water uh in in this second dozen issues there there was a way in which I was like oh okay but like a little bit of I'm not necessarily paying it the stuff that I'm taking for granted is the stuff that was the fans were a eating up with a spoon and still finding incredibly groundbreaking, you know? Well, that's just it. We're so used to, like, for a lot of us, a lot of this reads as cliche. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's because we came after this. <laughs> right. We are so familiar with everything that this influenced. Right. Exactly. That, the, the that sense we, can't, of we can't really see. Mm -hmm. It's like the Beatles. You can't, you, anyone born after the Beatles right. cannot really comprehend Mm -hmm. Just how absolutely out there some of that stuff was. Right. Right. Uh, you know, speaking of the Beatles, uh, this is something that I, I want to point out and hopefully won't seem... Well, it's going to be the world's worst job of name dropping because it's all incredibly anonymous. But I have uh, a friend of a friend. And the friend of a friend worked is in Paul McCartney. Is Paul McCartney? <laughs> no, worked worked in Hollywood as as a screenwriter and as a uh, directed a few things, but mainly did writing for some TV shows and things like that. He had the uh, opportunity to pitch for the Fantastic Four, the original one, the the original one, the one the the Fox the version Fox that one? came out the first with Fox, yeah. yeah Tim Story several years back, and. His idea of pitching it, which I thought was kind of genius, was A, um, that it, it should be a period piece, uh, and B, that the Fantastic Four should literally be the Beatles. And so you, well, n not literally, in that you turn Ringo and Paul <laughs> and John into it's, it's one of those times where literally <laughs> doesn't mean literally. Yeah, literally, yeah. literally actually so confuses the sense of things. Sorry, but I mean in the sense of um, you essentially have the Fantastic Four being like the Beatles in A Hard Day's Night, and they're always being mobbed, and they're always running from fans who are kind of shrieking. That happens Which a lot totally in these issues. In this, yes, exactly. Issues. It, yeah, there is very a, much, yeah. Yeah, a very, very strange... So I, I thought it was actually a very canny connection for him to make and couldn't help but think of it when you see things like the, like the department scene stuff. Um, so... Uh, but the, yes. the, the, because of that, because you have the first half of this, the issue, each issue, pretty much being filler. Yeah, feeling like filler. You have uh, a, a very rushed... In mm -hmm. almost every issue... A very rushed, nonsensical climax yeah. to each conflict. And for this issue, for example, they drop the, the Super Scroll in a volcano and seal it up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In the space of, like, half a page. Yeah. 
Now, that being said, I'm not a fan of that, but one thing that I think does make this issue work better than some of the others is that this is the first issue where it's not that primary, secondary, tertiary threat that I'm talking about. It's just the Super Squirrel, you know, and it's just his powers, and they have to face face him down, and it's just him. He's They're not facing his hordes. They're not facing some traps. They don't have to break into his fortress. It's just him versus them. And there's, I also kind of like the idea that there, he has a secret power that they don't know about so that when it's time for them to launch the plan that they have against him, it like ups the stakes. You know what I yeah, mean? Like yeah. it was, it was actually pretty dramatic. I think his superpower is somewhat lame for the most part, you know, but, but it, it you know, as issues go. And I do think that um, if I remember correctly, some of the issues that come after this tend to be a lot more of, well, there's a degree of focus of the supervillain does the supervillain, and there's not quite so many threats jammed into, again, like you pointed out, kind of a 10-page story. Do you think Do you think that this was still relatively early on for Kirby and Lee that... Neither of them, because Kirby in particular is the sort of dude who I feel like spent a lot of time crafting stories in the eight to ten page story mode. You know what I mean? Yeah, that you think that that's just where he's still comfortable. Yeah, he's kind of not fully comfortable with the full superhero format, and so it's almost like he's doing a here are two stories. You know, and the first one's basically goofy comedic stuff with a little bit of threat of the supervillain, and then the second one is basically here's them versus the supervillain. I know. think there's there's definitely a, a very strong element of that mm-hmm. at, at this point, and it's funny because by the time it gets to I think what is both of our favorite eras of Lee Kirby Fantastic Four, which is you know when Sinet comes on and and you're mm-hmm. talking like you know forty eight through fifty odd, mm-hmm. um, they're in three part stories. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like they, they've expanded their yeah their format so that one issue isn't enough, and so you have the expanded. You know, stories will continue for so long, and it's not even that the stories are necessarily more complex as much mm-hmm. as they're just longer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, at this point, you, I I think there is still a, a nervousness about how do we fill all these pages. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think so. Well, and it's fascinating, too, because I think as one of the things that's interesting is is that Kirby, as he goes on, when he gets to those mega epics that, that we love, one of the things that he's he really ends up doing is he ends up changing how he thinks about the page grid, you know? Well, which is going to happen very, very soon. By the time we get to the annual, I actually want to talk about that. Oh, I, I, it's funny, because that is that was a big thing for the, the annual for me as well, although... I, I was curious as to what extent you were going to think it was um, innovation or just, you know, necessity. So um, I, I, I think it's somewhere between the two. Mm-hmm. But before we get there, issue 19, Jeff, issue 19 <laughs> is, is why I want to bring up the omnibus. Mm-hmm. People may or may not know this. Uh, issue 19 of the Fantastic Four is the fabulous Fantastic Four find themselves prisoners of the Pharaoh, mm-hmm. except it's not. Because Pharaoh is misspelled <laughs> in this issue. And they did not fix it for the Omnibus, which I'm 
really kind of surprised about because Pharaoh's misspelled at every point in this issue. It's not yes. just one typo. Stanley clearly didn't know how to spell Pharaoh. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is completely wrong. So, well, it's, it's not completely wrong. He just gets the O and A mixed up. <laughs> well, I, yes, I mean he could have spelled it with an F, I guess, and that would have made it completely wrong. But uh, yeah, no, it is. It is. Uh, it looks weird, doesn't it? Um, it, really, it looks weird enough that you think it might be right. Or yes. maybe that was just me. I actually was like, wait, I need to go and check whether this is spelled correctly or not. Yeah. Because it looks wrong, but maybe it's not. Yeah, I, I'll I, be I honestly honest. had a moment of, they wouldn't have not corrected it for the reprint, right? See, I, I read these in the original scans, and I remember being just looking at it, being like, that looks wrong. But being old, I'm at the stage where just about everything looks wrong, so I didn't really follow up. I was just like, oh, So it's well. actually Prisoners of the Forois. For uh, yes, Ramatut. Um, I, I, I'm trying to think. You know, honestly, the thing that's sad is for me the the two things that really seem like the biggest of the big deals for me are a. This is Ramatut who ends up, you know, playing a role in, in you know my beloved Steve Englehart's uh, Celestial Madonna storyline. <clears throat> and the fact that there's a letter from Steve Gerber in the, in the letters pages, which I think is wait that that's what you take from this issue. So far, yeah. Jeff, <laughs> this this is uh, I really like I really like this issue. Oh, did you? Uh, okay, interesting. Uh, one of the things that I really like about this issue is well, it, it's kind of the wackiness and sloppiness that won me over of the other issues I didn't like, but mm. enough of it that it totally wins me over. Oh, interesting. Uh, so there's two things that I really like. Mm-hmm. One, they all travel back in time to find the mysterious radioactive herb that will cure Alicia's blindness. Yes. In doing so, they leave Alicia, the blind woman with no training, in charge of bringing them back. Yes. That's that's an, an interesting maneuver there, Wade yeah. Richards. Thing number two, mm-hmm. they can't cure her blindness because mm-hmm. A it would break the character. Her her entire purpose in the series is she can't see Ben Grimm, therefore she recognizes his true beauty and not his outward ugliness. Yes. But also, in plot terms, because they can't bring anything radioactive back through the time machine. Right. They then go, well, that's really sad. Oh, shit. Well, we'll try and find it anyway. As opposed to going... Why don't we just take Alicia to the past, give her the radioactive herb <laughs> there, and cure her blindness, and then bring her back? That's genius. I wish I had thought it's, of that. It's honestly the first thing I thought of. Mm. It was like, wait, she's right there beside the time machine, you guys. Honestly, the first thing that I thought of is the, like, basically, the, I thought this issue must have been a very, very special one for a young Chris Claremont. That's what I ended up thinking. Because... The scenes on, you know, pages 11 through 13 where the Fantastic Four are totally subjugated to the Pharaoh and, you know, have to do everything that he says um, even while understanding that they are helpless to stop it and are trapped, essentially yes, being forced they, to do they what they want to do. Many, yes, they have many, many, many doublings along the lines of, I don't want to do it, but my body can't resist. Yeah, exactly. Chris, a young Chris Claremont, very, very tingly about this issue. I, I predict that that is the case. This must have been a very important one for, for him. 
Oh, and uh, I love the uh, fact that Stanley doesn't know how boats work. That's another one. This is out of all the wait. science ones. Also, you don't love the fact that the Sphinx is revealed to be a time machine. Okay, I do love that because that's so prime Kirby. You know what I mean? That it's, is just it's, such... a, it's great. Yes. Yeah, I, that is such a Kirby thing. But you know what I mean about the boats, right? Because that was that was wonderful. I actually don't know what you mean about the boats. Okay, so Ben Grimm is shackled. Well, he no, he's not even shackled. But I guess he is shackled. He's the thing is shackled to this uh, galley and is forced to row with the other slaves. And then because of the heat affecting his body, he turns back into Ben Grimm, who's not controlled by the mind control stuff of Ramatut. He punches a bunch of dudes. He jumps in the water. And then at the top of page 14, first panel, you have the hilarious panel. He is swimming away from a galley. And one of the guys says... (laughs) I see what you're saying. He has leaped overboard after him, and the other guy is, it is useless. We cannot row this cumbersome vessel as fast as he can swim, which I'm like, that is genius. I love the idea that 20, like all those guys rowing, it's not as fast as an actual swimmer. No. Hey, Ben Grimm can swim really fucking fast. Well, see, that's it. I was just like, that guy must swim like a fucking champ. So... No, I, I I I liked all the other goofy issues. This one was just sort of. Um, I think I like some of the visuals. I like the fact that the Sphinx is his time traveling spaceship. Um, I like the fact that that the guy is. It's suggested that he's an ancestor of Doctor Doom, but it is not. They don't really draw a line under it. You know, yeah. like. It's, it's it's left very very open to interpretation. Yeah, exactly. Which is the sort of thing that you're like. Also, I talking about goofiness that that one or either of his loves. I love the fact that he keeps his optic nerve restoring radioactive herb in a jar that says optic nerve restored. <laughs> He's like, you know, I just just in case anyone's wondering what to look for. I yeah. mean for the optic nerve restorative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's awesome. Um it's it is it's also uh a couple of things narratively worth pointing out. Mm-hmm. The at this point they are really relying on the Ben turns from the thing back into Ben Grimm, and that is what turns the tide. Angle, which I feel has been used like two or three times at this point. Oh, it's been, definitely issue... been used before, yeah. But yeah, we're only in like issue nineteen, well, and they I... use that a bunch. Also, this is maybe the turning point I think for Lee and Kirby deciding that they should maybe do something with Sue Storm. Mm-hmm. I feel that she has more agency here than she has done in almost every other issue of this book. Well, I, I see. This is funny. I think it goes back to that that issue where she judo chops Dr. Doom is they, someone is actually thinking about it and changing it up. And by the time you get to the force field, but yeah, no, she's definitely over time. Well, they, they do things where it's like, where it's so painful. Like when she turns off the Android and they're like, Oh, it's a good thing you were here, Susie. You did that because no one else could. And it's literally just embarrassing, like, because Reed's arm's busy and the, the Johnny Storm's things are sweaty and, you know, my hands, I've got a thing where I can't touch gray stuff, you know, because it creeps me out, you know, <laughs> it's just not very overwhelming. Um, yeah, um, so it's it's fun. Is this is this inked by Ayers? It's definitely inked by Ayers. Um, uh, yeah, I want to say so. Cause we're very close to, to that not being the case and it being... Uh, a bad change. <laughs> oh, you're not crazy about George Bell, then, huh? Oh, I'm. I yeah. I not crazy is polite. Mm, I I think he's a terrible, terrible, terrible inker for Kirby. Interesting. 
Do you want to talk about Steve Garber's letter because you brought it up before, or do you want to just accept that it's there? I just accept that it's there. I mean, I, I like the fact that he spends a lot of time complaining about stuff and then stands. And complaining about the issues that I love. 13 yes. and 15 are the issues yeah, he complains exactly. about. Exactly. I know. I was like, what? He, the, fact that, the fact that Steve Gerber complains about the Space Ghost issues as being silly kind of breaks my soul a little bit. But I do love the fact that Stan says, Steve would be a great letter writer if he wasn't so shy about his opinions. Which I was like, well, that is a fine predictor for what's going to happen to Gerber as a as a comic book writer, you know, it's definitely. Like, it's sadly all there. Mm-hmm. It's right there. Right. Ger- Gerber versus Marvel started back in 1965. <laughs> so, do you want to jump in? I mean, because part of me is also I don't know. I figure we gotta we gotta we're gonna have to hustle to to wrap up the last let's, couple of let's, issues. Let's and hustle. Hit the annual. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's hustle. Issue twenty. Right. Is is another great one. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fabulous Fantastic Four discover the mysterious Molecule Man. It yes. is the first appearance of the Molecule Man, in case you couldn't tell from <laughs> that intro. Uh, it also sees the return of the Watcher. Mm-hmm. And reading this, and maybe it's because I, I read what I'm about to refer to really recently, but the origin of the Molecule Man in this, mm-hmm. and him uh, talking to his employer who fires him, because of yes. the accident turned him into Molecumon, was so Will Eisner's spirit to me. Oh, interesting. I mean, incredibly. It felt like it could have come mm-hmm. from a spirit story, mm. uh, and which gave me an immense amount of goodwill mm. for the rest of the story. There mm-hmm. was something about that, about the his shaggy alter ego before the accident, mm-hmm. about the the visual of him afterwards with the, the lightning scars mm-hmm. about the fact that the company fires him be- because of the accident that has essentially ruined his life. Mm-hmm. But he goes out to get revenge and he gets revenge in such a, a silly way. Right. By, by essentially just like pouring snow on the guy. Mm-hmm. Um, really struck me as, as Eisner-esque. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. I, um, I find this issue really, really fascinating for a, a number of things. One is, like I said, there there is the feeling that, for me, it feels like a retread in a lot of ways. Like, it really feels like just the Impossible Man story retold, at least in the sense of the the visuals, the idea that it's like, oh, no, we've got, like, a guy who can do anything. And the stuff that he's doing is relatively and it and, and in fact just a few issues later with the infant terrible it's the same sort of deal in sense of oh we have like a a being that can do anything and yet fortunately what they're doing is relatively trite and has a lot of yeah, things to it, do. Yeah, it's with very like, it's very mundane, which yeah. I I I really like here in a way that it didn't quite work from in the others because I read it as a failure of the molecule man's imagination. Mm. That he was just this mundane guy who all of a sudden has ultimate power, but still can't really think about what to do with it. Well, okay, so so he's like, "I'm a big deal, you guys. Look, right? I'm, you know, uh, sure. I've covered the Invisible Girl in newspaper, so I can see her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, like he's right. trying to act big, and he's sort of failing. Which right. I, I think also, I think I might be horribly projecting that because of my eyes and a reading of this. No, I, I think, I think that makes sense. Uh, I, one of the things that I find weird about this is. Knowing that the that seeing the other parts in the FF 
where Lee and Kirby are working at cross purposes. It's very hard for me to think that this was an issue where they sat down and, you know, <laughs> you're like, why would they come into sync now? Right, exactly. Because because there's a weird how do I put it? If Fantastic Four number 20 was the product of one person and that one person was Stan Lee, right? Like top to bottom, soup to nuts. It's it's easy to see the Molecule Man as a story that's a little bit of a piss take about the self-importance of comic book artists, you know? Because one of the things that I find fascinating is is that the Molecule Man is... Like, you get a lot of faceless dudes in Lee and Kirby's Fantastic Four, like Doctor Doom, or guys where you just don't see their face for dramatic reasons until whenever. The Molecule Man is strangely and specifically nameless. He does not... He's not given a name. And, and when we see him in his little origin, he's he is presented... Like, the Watcher is calling him, like, small, puny, and ridiculous looking and stuff like that. He he is, when we see the Molecule Man, he's basically like, I'm only a cog in the wheels of Acme Atomics Corporation. I do the work, and they make the money. If only I had the guts to quit, but where could I go? So, to me, this is this is the freelancer's lament, you know? Like, this is, like, maybe that's something that Stan Lee himself felt, you know, trudging away, you know, trying to prop up Marvel at some point, maybe even at this point. But it's fascinating to me that the Molecule Man is nameless, you know, basically complains, at, you know, that he is doing all the work and someone else, he's basically in a work-for-hire situation. And then when he gets his powers, even though he's given the powers to do all this stuff, uh, he uses, he uses a wand to, as his little focus. So Mm -hmm. you've got a guy who is basically running around with a pen, you know, or at least a, a pen analog, you know, waving it around and having things totally be rewritten to, you know, the best of his various abilities. Um, and yet, as you point out, it, it, he never really necessarily means manages to come to much. Um, and so there's a way in which I'm like, okay, so Lee's, if, if, if this were, if this were a story where Lee and Kirby, if is one creator, it's easy to see the molecule man as either a piss take of the moaning work for hire employee who, when given ultimate power, just basically turns into a craven coward and, a basically a kind of an unimaginative dolt a la um, Secret Wars 2 number one, where essentially the same thing happens to Steve Gerber analog uh, <laughs> under the auspices of Jim Shooter, yeah. who, who of course ends up using Molecule Man a lot, is basically the linchpin of Secret Wars uh, volumes one and two. Um, or the flip side of it is that the Molecule Man really is a guy who has a genuine grudge and is a, a genuine complaint. And a lot of his abilities and powers to do things are undone by the fact that he literally can't change the way that life is. 
you know, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, mm-hmm. the organic nature of things that they talk about. He literally can't change just that, the, the, mm-hmm. the way things actually are. So the fact that it is two people, the fact that it is Kirby and Lee creating. Absolutely one baffling unified to mind. me. Mm-hmm. Right. Because I, I was going to say, I, I, if you were going to try and make the argument that, I, that Lee was working across purposes of the Kirby... Mm-hmm. I don't think that's necessarily true here. No, Especially I in the flashback yeah. up at the origin mm-hmm. because Lee's really po- pointing out that you don't know who this guy is, that you don't know the name. Yeah. It, for, it's taking visual cues from Kirby because mm-hmm. Kirby doesn't show his face. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, Kirby, even in the scene where he's talking to his boss, the guy's face is hidden behind the the lampshade. Right, right. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. Which which is really really, I don't know. It, it it there's, I'm not going to make the argument that all of a sudden they're working in sync. No, but they're definitely not working at the cross purposes that they, that they are elsewhere. Yes, they, they they're they are taking leads from each other in a way that they haven't so far. Right. In this issue, yeah. And there there's uh, getting back to something we were saying about an earlier issue. This is another issue where. Uh, kindness uh, uh, is is the undoing, or kindness is the saving grace. Yes, because you get the Yancey Street gang mm-hmm. rescuing the Fantastic Four. That's right. When when all looks grim, mm-hmm. um, and so there there is a lot of you've seen this before, but mm-hmm. as we we're saying earlier on, it feels very much like the refining of earlier ideas, yes. and done much more successfully and with much more purpose and finesse mm-hmm. yeah than i think has, has been has has been shown for the earlier issues yeah no it definitely feels there's a lot to it which is um it definitely feels like you know one issue as opposed to you know kind of shtick and then threat jammed together and it definitely feels like a much better an improvement and a refining of um, the 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 original Impossible Man story. I'm just fascinated to which the idea that I you could see the story for me as being read in either way, and yet you can't really read it in either way. You know what I mean? There's really mm. no clear case for um, if Lee and Kirby are working in sync. Uh, it's at least to the point of the refinement of the story but you don't necessarily get that extra point that someone like Eisner would be able to use the yeah. story to, yeah. for his, to his make a point to yeah, make to a actually, point to actually come to something. Exactly. Um, we are doing a terrible job of speeding through these issues. We said that. <laughs> now we, we that. Yes, uh, there's two more things I want to say about this issue very quickly. Okay. One is this is also the first issue in a while where the ending does not feel rushed mm-hmm. uh, because the Deus Ex Machina has actually been set up way back at the start of the issue. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which I, I think is is really unusual. It shows a surprising level of planning yeah. from the, uh, the Lee and Kirby that we've seen so far. That oh, it's actually been set up. You mm-hmm. you have done a, a Chekhov's gun with the Watcher Sphere. Yeah. Uh, and the second thing is the letters page, Jeff. The letters page. Oh my God! Yes, yes. The George R. R. Martin and Mark Grunwald. And Grunwald, I know. Isn't that amazing? Seeing Mark Grunwald made my eyes bug out. The secretary of the Fantastic Four fan club in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And George R. R. Martin. It's amazing. Yeah, I have I, to I, say. Really, really kind of surprising. Okay, according to the Omnibus, we have now come to the Fantastic Four annual. Oh, okay. Um, uh, that annual, I have to say, is... 
I enjoyed it a lot. I, I, I thought that it was one of the first annuals that, because uh, I had read a lot of these individual issues and reprints, first time reading the annual. A, I thought that it was, it was one of the strongest appearances of the modern age Submariner. I, I actually thought I, that... I love I love that after so we lost a submariner and he was like my people are probably out there I'm gonna go and find them and this issue starts with him having found them and being back amongst them yes which is great mm-hmm. it's like you thought I was setting you up for a quest fuck it no he's found them yeah and by the end of the story they're written out again mm-hmm. right right no it's great it's... it just closes off that narrative altogether yeah. And and but not to the point where it significantly changes the character. Well, I you know it's it's one of those things that I think is I mean, what I appreciated is a lot of times I've always been underwhelmed by annuals as a general thing. Like every once in a while, I remember picking one up and it was like, oh okay, this feels like an extra big story, big deal, you know. But this one actually really did because it opens with submariner with his people and then goes on for a significant chunk the the that prime story is is something like oh no 37 pages long it's it's a big ass story um and to and like you said it starts off with this whole new status quo for namor it introduces dorma and krang who of course come back later but it really seems like oh this is going to be the submariner's new status quo and that's where it starts you know and so seeing where that idea of like wow where the hell is this going to go the opening is Mm -hmm. uh it's really interesting as well because and i talked about this a couple of seconds ago yes um you have kirby in kirby pacing mode of his later career for the first time yeah you have the full page splash followed by a double page splash followed by a six-panel page laid mm-hmm. out in the grids that pretty much th- that is his format for his DC work. Exactly. And you exactly. see here for the first time. And the pacing in general, maybe because it's a 37-page story, mm-hmm. feels much more deliberate and feels much more both relaxed but yes. not rushed. It feels correct for the first time. Yeah, it, it's it's really fascinating to me the way in which Kirby is able to kind of wedge in all the stuff that he wants kind of in all the lengths that he wants it. Like I'm in a regular, you can see him in some of the FF's 20 page stories. Like I feel, and I could be wrong. Lee was not particularly scientifically hip, I think, but Kirby definitely tried to follow current science and was interested in it. It was it was a passion of his. And so it's not surprising that the FF stories of these times usually open up with like three pages of read in the lab doing some sort of scientific thing. Because that's the kind of thing that really turns Kirby's crank. Here mm-hmm. we get this um, really amazing sequence of several pages talking about the evolution of Homo mermanus how it would work, you know, with like right down to the very Kirby-esque, like people riding dolphins like they were horses and using them to like catch fish and nets and stuff like that and segue into uh, a, a, a 
you know, an origin of the Submariner, which itself then turns into just this amazing sequence in which the professor who's giving this whole speech begins taking off his shirt. <laughs> and turns out to be the Submariner. Because again, like Dr. Room in the previous yes. thing, sorry, he's wearing like a full face mask and nobody noticed. Yeah, nobody notices at all. Nobody notices at all. But um, I, I, do, I do love the fact that the United Nations uh, Atlantean expert is the Submariner. Yes! Yeah, it's and, so good that they're like, okay, we've brought in an expert. Everyone knows him. You've all read his books. Right, exactly. It does make you like, like, I'm the Submariner. Mm -hmm. Don't ask. (laughs) Maybe maybe this has been me all along. Maybe I've kidnapped him and taken Yeah, who knows? Who knows? Maybe I hypnotized you all and he's never existed. But there you go. Sort sort of similar An to the eminent way... authority on undersea life <laughs> who's volunteered to explain the origin of Namor and his almost legendary race. Well, and he's the submariner himself. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. I mean, you know, he's basically talking about his parents doing it and him as an offspring, and he's like, mm, that's me. And then he's like, hey, you guys. <laughs> it's me. It's Namor. <laughs> Oh man, uh, let me tell yeah. you. But it's it's I'm, okay. So again, this is the issue where um, the team is bored. So they decide they're all going to go on vacation, uh, yes. but they're not really going to go on vacation. They have been asked to investigate something, but they're going to treat it as vacation. Yes. Great superheroes, right there. To the point where they bring along Alicia. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Again, yeah. No, I, uh, I, you know, I have to say that although it's not nearly as strong as issue thirteen. Um, this is probably my favorite issue uh, of the batch behind issue 13. Because I really do feel like there is a, just a, a, a mess of stuff that I could talk about. Oh, there's, there's so here. much stuff in this. I, mm-hmm. Like, the Atlantis it overruns New York. Like yeah. They win. They, yeah. They, they take over New York. And they almost, like the Molecule Man, they all but do it practically off-panel. They do it in the space yes. of, like... And... And but in a way that somehow just manages to nicely really ramp up the drama, you know, for me. Yeah, because because you have the moment of oh shit, mm-hmm. if they can do that, mm-hmm. then then everything's on the table. Yeah, exactly. Which exactly. is really it's an in, a really uh, fascinating narrative trick because we know as readers now nothing's on the table. Yes, right. You know. Right. This 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 is going to be the status quo. The status quo at the start of the story is going to be the status quo for the next fifty years. Right. But that we can then read it as well. What the fuck happens now? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is is I think a sign that it is a a good story. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I I don't know. It's 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 complicated because I do. Part of me is kind of like. You know, there's that amazing sequence earlier on that seems to go on for a relatively long period of time where the FF are, where Namer's basically like, oh, I'm going to, re- I'll return you to New York. And he he fires him off in this special oh, capsule it, yeah, and it, everything. It, yeah, and like the, the, the jellyfish thing or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it floats down in that beautiful, yeah, that membranous thing. It's just gorgeous to look at, but it is kind of that thing of like, Wow, it's it's fascinating to me that Kirby wanted to spend, you know, a page and a half drawing that and did not really care much. Like, the conquering of New York was kind of like, eh. Well, not only the conquering of New York. Choice panels, you know. But the Atlanteans leaving. 
Hoppins, Ohio. Oh yeah, well. yeah, yeah. That's true. But I think you see them take off on page twenty-five. I, I think what happens is Reed turns on his um, special ray thing that that evaporates all the water, and you see everyone flip out and jump into the ocean on page twenty-five. So. I there's just something about the them getting back like that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It it makes all of it seem like a weird un, uh, anticlimax, which I kind of love. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. There is. I I agree because there is a lot of like that's sort of that way that that the earlier issues have a very jammed together primary set threat, secondary threat, tertiary threat kind of thing. You have the Atlanteans invading New York as a secondary threat in this story and you get to have a great like they bring it on there's the oh shit sequences and then they sweep it away and you still have space for the ff basically for each member of the ff to fight the submariner for a couple of pages you know um well what's kind of amazing is so you have new york overrun by the by the atlantean hordes mm -hmm. and that is almost worthless to the story Mm mm-hmm Right. You don't see it happen. You don't don't really see it end. Like, and, and it's not the primary thing at all. It happens halfway through the story. Yes. That, that, that it's over. Mm-hmm. Because the story is really about Namor and Sue and Reed. Yes. And they manage to place that emphasis entirely right. It's the point where you get to the end of the story. Mm-hmm. And Namor is repositioned as a tragic anti-hero. Oh, God. I love who has that been scene. rejected by everything. Yeah. And you buy it. It feels totally earned in a way Completely. that nothing prior to this mm-hmm. has really sold you on that idea of the Namor. I agree. Like, you've seen Namor be an astounding dick and an outright villain. Yes. But by the time you get to the end of this story, yeah. you have the idea that Namor is a tragic anti-hero. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Really sells me on it in a way that never really worked before. And I, I'm, I would be shocked if it... I'm... Hesitant to say if it really has ever worked for me in the same way since this yeah. this scene the scene of oh so good yeah yeah him him walking through that crowd of people just loathing him and abjuring him and him not even really bothering to address it in any way until mm-hmm. he's just like oh you can't even t- talk to me it's great how much he like saves Sue doesn't stick around doesn't say a thing about it. And then the last panel is kind of him being when he's absolutely all alone and he knows no one's around him. He's just like, is there ever going to be a place for me on this earth? And it's just, ugh, it's really good. It's really good. I, I quite enjoyed that. Um, good for you, Namor. Yeah, well done. It's, it, but it, yeah, it's a really, really good story. And it, it feels epic and different enough in a way that an annual should yes exactly this i really did read this being like oh this is this really is what an annual should be i mean you know they jam it with a bunch of other stuff in there um to varying degrees of like oh that's kind of nice you know (laughs) kind of like oh i'm so glad as much as i love steve kirby that he didn't draw spider-man you know stuff like that. yeah exactly you You get the spider-man backup and that feels utterly inconsequential oh yeah yeah all like okay that that's really cute right right well but that was it for me it's just like oh well that's all disposable gravy i'm used to i'm used to it being like you get half an okay story and then it's like backed up with filler this was like By the time you you get to page thirty seven, you're like, I've it's read all killer some filler. Graham <laughs> <laughs> McMillan, you gem. Uh, issue twenty one. 
the oh, hate monger, or the sorry, the fabulous Fantastic Four turn against one, each other because of ellipses. The hate monger. <laughs> <laughs> the editors predict that this is the most unusual, thought-provoking tale you will read this season. We oh, believe man. you will agree. Destined to become a Fantastic Four classic. Both of those are on the splash page. Yes. They're like, listen, you guys, this uh-huh. is fucking big. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So first, thing, first things first. Mm-hmm. You asked me about George Bell before, and I said that I was not a George Bell fan. Right. Inking Kirby. George Bell <clears throat> takes over as inker uh, on this issue. Mm-hmm. And this splash page, I think, shows exactly why I'm right not to be a fan of George mm. Bell's uh, Fantastic Four inks because that is a terrible... The only good thing about his inks in that splash page is Reed. Well, okay. The thing looks terrible. Mm-hmm. The Human Torch is hilarious. Oh, hilariously bad, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, I run hot and cold on George Bell because on the one hand, in a way, he sort of reminds me of... Um, uh, like, uh, I want to say Greg Theakston or, um, who's the other guy, the guy who inked a lot of, uh, Kirby's, uh, DC stuff. Um, Mike Roy? No. Yeah. A little bit of Royer. Not, not oh, a, I, like, I don't get I know you would disagree Royer. with that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Because, well, Roy, but they are so much smoother. Bell's inks are so much, uh, sharper mm-hmm. and they're much more gestural, which I feel I should like. But mm-hmm. in a way that I feel completely does away with the structure within Kirby's drawings. Interesting, interesting. I could see that. I can see that. And um, for me, I feel that he actually there are parts where I feel like I'm all but looking at Kirby's pencils. You know, I feel like there's times where he 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 gets out of Kirby's way in a way, or or like even almost a more refined Vince Coletta in that he's not letting the stuff out he's not he's not taking stuff out on the other hand i can also see why you don't like him um because his stuff really kind of i think brings out a little bit of the ugliness in kirby too yeah much. He, he does make kirby's art mm-hmm. very very ugly <coughs> yeah yeah i think so as well um which is which is interesting. He definitely mm-hmm. does bring out a different element of Kirby. And there are points, there are certain things about his inks that I love. Um, mm-hmm. If you go look on page four, the mm-hmm. guy running from the crowd, uh, the inks on his suit, I really like. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. Yeah, the, and that's it. I feel I feel like he does um, he does a really nice job. Maybe maybe somewhat klutzy ish, but he definitely is not afraid to bring the blacks into sure. pencils. But the problem is all you then get something like his thing. And I think that bell inking uh, yeah. Kirby's thing is, is just a disaster yes. all the time. Yeah. There's, there's absolutely no nuance in line weight at all. Mm-hmm. Things are either like really heavy blacks or right. a relatively thin, but stable line in, inside that. And it just looks really, really strange. It looks ugly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see and that. We're, we're talking about all of this, and we're not saying anything about it. this. Is the issue with Adolf Hitler as the bad guy? Yes, Adolf Hitler is the bad guy. Um, Sergeant Nick Fury years shows before he shows one. up in Multiversity. <laughs> That's oh yes, yes, and believe me, if Lee and Kirby yeah. could have put Hitler on the toilet pooping, they totally would have. 
believe me. Yeah, next next episode, we're definitely <laughs> going to talk about that one <laughs> for sure. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I remember as a kid reading this and being pretty nonplussed by it. Honestly, like rereading it, I'm sort of equally nonplussed. I don't know the the. It's a nice gimmick, but it, it doesn't like it's not done right or it doesn't convince us a story yeah and it, it totally shoots right like, it, all the ingredients are there mm-hmm. and it just just doesn't come together yeah yeah it, it i think it's interesting to me that that you to realize and it, which makes a lot of sense that the hate monger appears before the psycho man does because psycho man takes a lot of the sort of the the one gimmick but dresses it up with so much more brilliant visuals you know, mm-hmm. um, yeah. say, I mean, well, I the hate monger's costume is essentially a Ku Klux Klan outfit, but it's yeah, purple. purple and with armor. And although it looks kind of, um, it, it does look kind of, I like the look of it in kind of a, Ooh, this looks kind of gross and fearsome kind of way. It definitely doesn't look as a, here's a dude who's going to take on the fantastic four. Cause he's got chainmail, you know, wrist cuffs or whatever is, is going to work even remotely. You know what I mean? It just yeah, it's kind of a mismatch. So the other um, thing that's really uh, that doesn't work for the story is turning a hate ray on the Fantastic Four that makes them fight. Mm-hmm. It's kind of meaningless because they fight all the time. Yes, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's not really offering a differentiator from what yeah. you normally see. Yeah, uh, yeah. and something that happens in this issue that is that jumped out at me mm-hmm. is you get uh, page four and five. You mm-hmm. get Ben Grimm basically turn on the neo-Nazis. Mm-hmm. And seeing the glee that the rest of the Fantastic Four take in him doing that, and this is before they've been shot with a Yes, hayward, before they've been shot with a hayward, Seemed yeah. super out of character. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, and part of that is mm-hmm. Bell's Inks again. Because mm-hmm. he outright makes Johnny look evil. Yes. Um, yeah. And Johnny's like, yeah, action at last, but he's got it like this evil grin in his face where he's yeah. like, ah, oh, fuck all of you. Uh-huh, uh, uh-huh. But, yeah, it's it, for this story to have worked, mm-hmm. the Fantastic Four need to have been the Justice League. Yeah, right. You know, you need right. to have had friends who never fight turn on yes. each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Turn each other and be like, oh, I don't like you. You're holding me back. You say that all the time. Right. Right. It's true. It's happened like you say this every issue. Yeah, there is something about it that seems it's it 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 feels like a very dashed off sort of secondhand issue. I think there's also a lot to be said for Lee eventually is able, you know, the guy's heart, I think, is in the right place. But his I mean, he's a little bit of uh, like I'm all for peace and love or I'll punch you in the eye. True believer kind of concept. And it makes for a very um, unnuanced take about how to oppose hate. You know what I mean? It's like, how do you hate the haters? Just hate them. And then, and that's what's yeah, happening. Just before hate they even them get enough. Yeah, exactly. I, it, it's very much the idea of, you know, it, it, like you just have to hate the right things. And the hate monger makes you hate the wrong things. And it's kind of like... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, admittedly, I'm way more of a hippie than that, but it just doesn't seem like it's 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 an inelegant subject tackled ultra inelegantly. Let's put it that way. I also feel like it's a very strong like this was Lee's idea of a type, you know, Lee really 
sitting down and plotting this issue just because there was so much Mr. Fantastic in it, too, where it's like, okay, Mr. Fantastic's going to go and fight a one-man war. Well, it's, you know? it's kind of fascinating in terms of, because you have Mr. Fantastic saying, like, you know, look how good I can be when I'm cutting loose. I've never cut loose before. Look at me. I'm going to kick some ass, which right. is all true. He is far more effective in this issue than he ever is before. Yes, but it doesn't work because he's never that effective again, ever. Well, it, and it's not even like this idea of like he couldn't be this. Uh, uh, I don't know. Usually in stories of that type, you're like, okay, then he gets in over his head and he's like, oh, my God. Yeah, exactly. Need, you exactly. Know. And in this one, he doesn't. Nah, not really. He gets yeah. in over his head, but then he gets back out again. Yeah. yeah. You know? And you're like, oh, okay. So, so he just doesn't do this normally because dot 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 more <laughs> time for the next issue um so uh do you want to jump to ff22 return of the mole man let's the, so. sorry the fabulous fantastic four present have you noticed by the way that fabulous has been uh, a modifier for fantastic four for like last five or six issues oh yeah it does it does point out that that is true although i think it's also fascinating because i've been trying to figure out how these story titles work and there are times in which i feel like when it's the fabulous Fantastic Four present, the title is The Return it's of the Moment. The Mole Return Man. of the Moment. Yeah, as opposed to... As opposed to ones where it's actually a sentence. Yeah, exactly. If it's the fabulous Fantastic Four, face off against the, you know... Yes, exactly. The power of the Pharaoh, you know, kind of yeah. deal. Yeah, it's very confusing. Uh, the Return of the Moment, the first foe the FF ever faces a team. And if yep. that doesn't sound exciting to you, listeners, it's because <laughs> it's not. <laughs> it's... It's staggeringly unexciting. Uh, and again, Jeff, I said it for the last issue. I'm going to say it for this one. If you think that George Bell is the right anchor for Kirby, I draw your attention to pages four and five. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That weirdo, like, all those. I don't know. It's, I'm not saying that he's the perfect guy. I just have to say that I think I prefer him to Dick Ayers for whatever reason. Oh um, yeah, I'm I'm I 100% disagree. Yeah, there's there a couple of those panels do look pretty ugly. I got to I got to admit, but uh um yeah, so it's very much I'm glad Sue gets more power. I definitely Yeah, it's, it's the... kind of funny. So it's, it's so it starts off with them basically being like, "Hey, Sue, turns out you can do more with your powers because we finally thought of it." Right. Right, exactly. Uh, like, well, once clearly, again, I... clearly, the readers have probably been asking. Yes, we have had people complain that you're bringing the team down. Yeah, and exactly. So we've come up with something else you can do with your powers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then they milk that for all it's worth. Oh God, and then some, and then yeah, some. it's it's kind of impressive how much they're like. Listen, how can we how can we really make the kids understand mm-hmm. that that she she can do stuff now? How do we do it? Because yeah, mm-hmm. uh, what if she turns a thing invisible? Okay then. What if she turns a trolley invisible? Okay then. What and this yeah. They 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 over egg that pudding, Jeff. For for sure, Graham. For sure. Um uh yeah, I uh it, it's a it's a Fantastic Four versus the Fortress issue, um, for the most part. I like the I like the various death traps that they get into and the way they fight their way out of them. I actually thought uh, that that's probably my favorite part about the issue, which may it, not be saying that, much. Yeah, it's it's a it's a kind of dull issue. Uh, mm. That is probably my favorite part as well. Worth pointing out that uh, the team are all facing death traps, with the exception of the Invisible Woman, who's stuck in a kitchen. 
Uh, the kitchen's going to blow up, though. She's got like she's but got like. But still, everyone else is like, "I'm in a terrible cell," and she's in the kitchen. Well, that's because hers, her, she is fighting the <laughs> ultimate yeah, yeah, death yeah. trap: the patriarchy. Is that what it is? Is that what it is? No, not really. No. Yeah. Something that I love about it, though, is that it pretty much has the mole man saying what we said last time, which mm-hmm. is, "Hey." I've got an underground kingdom, and you trapped me underground? Yeah, that's going to work out. Right, exactly. Well, I don't know. I mean, the the thing that's great is even he's saying something like, then when you tried to blow me up, what were you thinking? And now I've built a plan that's even worse. Is is I'm like, well, wait, I don't even remember. It's it, Again, it's that classic Lee Kirby, like, it's clear from the panels that Kirby is having them blow him up or trap him underground, which makes no sense. But in the the panels, I think in the captions, I, it makes it sound like Lee's saying that the Mole Man is trapping himself underground and they're yeah. trying to escape in time, uh, which is then contradicted by the Mole Man being like, you idiots! And I'm just like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> the Mole Man. Nobody really knows what's going on with the Mole Man. Let's Let's just face it. Especially the Mole Man. You know what I kind of love is that this issue is the issue where you're like, oh, that's right. I'm completely right not to care about the mole man. Yeah, the mole man is just kind of dull and, and not an interesting character. Mm-hmm. You can do whatever you want to try and do, but yeah, it's it's a uh, 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 another dud of the issue. It's it's just nothing about it comes together. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't. I I don't know. I it's. I basically think that that I, I have to agree. There's there's ways in which part of me is like, uh, you know, like a little uh, bit of the really what what works for you in this issue. Well, there's besides little... giving Sue better powers. Well, they give Sue better powers, and they actually have those better powers pay off in her uh, in in the death trap toward not only just the death trap, but in preventing the mole man's thing you know where he's trying to hit the switch and then he can't do it i i thought i thought that was again there was a certain cohesiveness they were thinking about the stuff at the beginning they admittedly over egged the pudding so that when the ending came people weren't like huh that makes no sense oh wait okay i guess i get it kind of thing bits where i like i like george bell's inking especially on the mutoids he leaves that 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 black line on there. I don't know. But like I said, I like the death traps. I'm just not saying, I'm not saying it's a great issue. I'm just saying that I, and, and that the mole man's pretty terrible, but at least it felt a little more cohesive in, in a way that if you jump back to issue 16, the micro world of Dr. Doom or something, it, you know, it's, it's just I, I'm saying it's it's somewhere in the B to C range as opposed to it's certainly not at the top, but I wouldn't I wouldn't really rank it at the bottom either. I will say what vaults it uh, over the Doctor Doom departure, mm-hmm. the letters page again yes. which features Roy Thomas and Dave yep. Cockrum. Yes, and Steven Erickson, who uh, I know you don't really track, and neither does anyone else, but. Steve Erickson, ladies and gentlemen, the strange avant-garde science fiction writer. So. Kind of an amazing uh, hat trick of a of a letters issue. Um, Let's speedily rush through. Oh my goodness, so speedily! Uh, issue issue twenty three and twenty four. If only because we really do only have like ten minutes before. I, I know. I have to literally fly out of here. Yeah. Um, uh, so speedily, uh, issue twenty three 
feels very unnecessary. Yes. Um, it feels like they're bringing back Doctor Doom too early. Sorry, issue 23 is the fabulous Fantastic Four become victims of the master plan of Doctor Doom, exclamation yes. point. Yeah. Um, and it feels very unnecessary. <clears throat> mm-hmm. it, it feels kind of pointless, but it does feature my favorite Doctor Doom line to date. Oh, really? Which is what? Why so surprised, fool? Only I would bail three criminals with special talents out of jail <laughs> so that they might serve me. No! Not only you, Doctor Doom. So many people do that. It's true. There's there's a little bit of. I think that's the thing that sort of sort of the way that 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 Doctor Doom's previous plan is to dress up as a janitor and basically sick balloon animals on the Fantastic Four. This is barely a step above his idea of like, here's some third rate failures. What if I recruit them and turn them into second rate failures? Is really <laughs> really underwhelming. You know? And again, not for the first time in the series, you have characters do things in service of the plot. Mm-hmm. But if you take what if you take what happens to them to logical conclusion, you're like, well, why isn't he doing something more productive with that? Because in this, right. Doctor gives them superpowers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. He gives these three funky superpowers. And again, why doesn't he do something more productive with that? If yeah. he can't give people superpowers, why isn't he giving people a better superpowers? Right. And B like more people's superpowers or yeah. different superpowers or, you know, it, it's one of those, well, it serves the plot, but the plot is dumb. Yeah. Stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and... and um, to- right. I was going to say, talking about the plot is dumb, this is also the issue where the three other members of Fantastic Four decide that they have to replace Reed Richards only for <laughs> all of them to be revealed to be idiotic children. <laughs> yes. I agree. I I do. I I both love that and think that it is a terrible choice. It always seems to reflect on this idea. Stan Stan Lee's belief that the leader is an alpha male who's supposed to be the leader, and you can never challenge or assert it. And everyone's going to even you know any the only people who do are basically you know complete dim, dim selfish idiots. Yeah. yeah. You know that that is that is the entire Stan Lee method. Mm-hmm. Stan Lee want you to know that the alpha smartest man in the room mm-hmm. is is in charge and if you don't agree you're just stupid right exactly you're the idiot on a personal level i find it offensive but i i really do enjoy i don't know i just the idea that the rest of the ff are just just dumb as stumps always <laughs> amuses me i think it's glad that they moved away from it but in this issue it just so <laughs> cracks me up you kind of have to because in this issue it's ridiculous let's vote for who's going to be leader we all voted for ourselves <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and Reed Richards is such a dick as well. Like all this is going on is like you idiots. You yes, sh- you'll come crawling back. Oh my god, such an asshole! It's totally, it's it's totally Jim Shooter for Jim Shooter. Yeah, yeah, Shooter, yeah, very much so. Shooter very much was educated by the worldview of Reed Richards in these issues. I think so. I mean, again, seeing the Molecule Man pop up, seeing the stuff from issue thirteen, you know, the blue area of the moon being such a template for Secret Wars. I, I, I you know, I sort of half think that you're kidding, but I do think that there's something where like Shooter is much more heavily influenced by these issues than I would have had any concept. Oh of. no, I, I, I totally think he is. I, mm-hmm. I am, I am being snarky in saying it, but mm-hmm. I also genuinely believe that the social politics 
and mm-hmm. the plot structures of like the first three years of FF yes. shape Shooter's idea of what a Marvel comic should be. Yeah, yeah, dramatically. I think that's actually a really, really good point. Um, yeah, I, God, I don't know. So, uh, I just didn't, I thought the terrible trio were terrible. In fact, and, and when they did, <laughs> wah, just a, wah. Wah, wah, I didn't, I actually looked them up online cause I was like, Oh Jesus, these idiots don't ever appear again. Right. They just forget about all. And then oh, I'm they, like, they've got, no, they've got to be brought up by like, someone, Well, they were brought up by like Dan Sloth or something. Roy, Roy Thomas. Even before that. Yeah, exactly. They've been brought back a lot. And it really was like, oh, right. Yeah, that sort of vaguely rings a bell. Jesus. They're, we should have just... Everyone should have just left them alone. Also, I love the end of the the end of the issue with the master plan of Doctor Doom, where it's this insane... So, the whole, like, oh, oh there's solar a solar flare that is going to... Yeah, the solar flare that is somehow going to eat holes in reality? Yeah. I don't know what important wire was was crossed. Yeah, exactly. What Kirby was thinking he was talking about, what Lee thought Kirby was talking about, but the whole solar wave, ionic dust, this room is turning into nothing, and the only way we can stop ourselves from fading into nothing is... is... By getting out the room. Yes. Un... That's that's the weirdest part. This room is going to become a portal to another dimension, (laughs) but only this room. Right. And so if you get out of this room, everything's fine. See, and this is the thing that is really amazing, is in another few years, Kirby and Lee will have the negative zone, and it will be amazing. But right now, what you just have is this half-formed, dashed-off idea that reads like surrealism, you know, to put it mildly. Uh, It's just absolutely absolutely insane um Every, and it's... everything about this issue feels weirdly not thought out and and yes whereas before we were saying that the earlier like the, the retreads and earlier issues felt like refinements of ideas mm-hmm. this is very much an issue that doesn't this is very much yeah. an issue that feels like we have to do something for this issue we have no ideas let's just bring back dr doom let's give superpowers to other guys because that's worked out a couple of times so far yeah. how do we write them out there's just going to be like a hole in the floor. He'll fall through at the end. Yeah, literally. I mean, it is, it is, uh, it's an attempt to create a story that is almost all sensation. Like if you flip through it, I mean, it is, it's a, it's an issue that opens up with an out of control Velociraptor in the Baxter building for fuck's sake. You would think yeah, that because they wouldn't... the time machine just puts itself on every now and again and no one's paying attention to it, which, <laughs> you know, what? <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't. I gotta admit, was that the actual explanation as to where he came from? Yes, yes, oh that is God. that is genuinely what it is. Doctor Doom's oh. time machine sometimes turns on, and uh, the thing and Human Torch were fighting, and so didn't see it happen. Yeah, exactly. So you know, so yes, so you know, I think is exactly the right. Yeah, thing it, to say to uh, the amount of thought that was being put into it. And finally, that brings us to the infant terrible, the enfant terrible. No, the infant terrible. The infant terrible. <laughs> Boy, it sounds Never so horrible have you read said a tale. aloud. Never have you seen a creature remotely like the infant terrible, mm-hmm. a book-length classic of the incredible. <laughs> surprise follows spectacular surprise in the marvelous Marvel manner. First oh, of all, Marvel is Marvel. Stan, you clearly were having an off day. Yeah. Secondly, the rest of this story 
Oh, pretty yeah. much reads like that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, in on the first page, it says, "Strange title for a comic magazine story." That's the infant terrible. Not nearly as strange as the incredible super adventure which is now about to unfold before your eyes. Mm-hmm. Note. Toss away all your ideas about what a comic mag story should be like. This yarn breaks all the rules. We really let ourselves go, and we kind of think you'll be glad we did. Nope, yeah. I'm not. Uh, I, I'm not glad you did, Stan. I'm not glad you did. Stan. You know what? Stan's not either. Stan's very much aware that they bluffed it through on this one. Yes. When um, he says something like that mm-hmm. at the start of the issue, you know you're going to read a bit of a dog. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this one is... Uh, whew. However, to get back to a constant theme of this week, it's Secret Wars 2, Jeff. Yes, it really is. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely this, right. This is a Beyonder coming to Earth in Secret Wars 2 and mm-hmm. getting taken in by mobsters who try and take him, take advantage of his powers, but he's mm-hmm. ultimately well-meaning. Yeah, he's... It's, he's it, that's the story. Yeah, he's, he's... Yeah, it is. It's Secret Wars 2 um, done with... Like, there's some scene of where, oh, where everyone's hats fly out of the way... Alicia gets trampled by a crowd. Um, there's a there. It's it's just to be fair, sort of like the previous issue. I have to say that although although I really see a lot of weaknesses there, I, I feel like they're sort of very Kirby-ish weaknesses, right? I mean, is that is that wrong? No, do you I, think? I, I think I think you're entirely right. Mm-hmm. I think this is this is very much a. I mean, it's it's very much a Kirby story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, on on. On almost every level, mm-hmm. the 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 intent because again, this is ultimately a story of if you're kind, things will be okay. Right. If you're greedy, things will go wrong. Right. Uh, which is which for me is very Kirby. I think Kirby's themes are ultimately that simple. Mm-hmm. Kirby's stories are ultimately along the lines of be a good guy and you'll be fine. Well, and also a little bit of that like. Oh, there's out sort of like there's an outsider and they don't understand how the world works and it's crucial it's crucial to how you treat them. Like you mentioned it's Secret Wars too. Flipping through it, I realized that it's also a little bit of it's the Silver Surfer twenty issues before its time. Just completely different. But you know, but but Kirby's still trying to it's it's the itch that he's trying to scratch. You know, like you said, he's trying to say something about kindness and about human nature, and especially in regards to how we react to the alien. You know, like yeah, everything the like everything that about how humanity, whether humanity is going to survive or not, ultimately comes down to: how, are we going to be good people or are we going to be total dicks to the next thing? that shows up here that is completely and utterly beyond our, our comprehension. Which is amazingly Kirby. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, that is, that is, that is something that Kirby continually does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kirby is about, it is about meeting the alien with a hand of kindness mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and putting our best face forward. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You yeah, know, the the I, desperate need for that. That that that's really the only invention that humanity has created. That's that 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 has a chance in the yeah. face of it. You know, um, something entirely uh, surreal to point out. Mm-hmm. 
the spaceship from the aliens is from the War of the Worlds movies. I noticed that too. George Powell's 1953, like a dead ass rip. Like, wow. Yeah. 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 N- not even uh, recovered. Not, yeah, not even vaguely subtle. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, also, page 21. Mm-hmm. The scene with Alicia getting trampled, mm-hmm. and then the cuts to read. Yes, weird, right? The s- images are so similar. Yes, that I'm I'm sure there is some something in the art that didn't translate into the the hard cut in the dialogue. Yeah, it, they're it's really strange. Like it visually jumps out at you as soon as you see the page. Oh yeah, it's deliberate. It's deliberately meant to be a jump between them. Um, but you don't know what I think. I think honestly, it, it may be what we were just talking about. That there is, um, that there's basically it's a jump between despair and hope. You've got Alicia, and she is sort of despairing and hopeless, and you've got Reed, who has summoned the the aliens, and with the idea that they are basically going to be decent, good, advanced. Mm-hmm. people essentially mm-hmm. so <clears throat> which is, is again a fascinating coda to the story yeah yeah absolutely i the mean re- the read puts the subtext into text essentially by saying i was trusting in kindness yes he absolutely was right he was yeah i guess that's well done graham we actually puzzled out what the story explicitly told us <laughs> <laughs> hey when it's called the infant terrible and it is quite as um, clumsy as, oh, as this issue is. Uh, I mean, this issue is a 1960s Star Trek. Yes. Yeah. I thought so, too. Like, very specifically. Um, which is interesting, because I think it's actually... Oh, it predates it significantly. Yeah, it's significantly. Like 60, 63 or 64. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because it's probably, I think, in the same way, they're supping from the same trough, which is it's probably... March, si- March 64, apparently. Yeah, prob- probably the same way that that, that that same sort of sci-fi humanism of Star Trek drew from Twilight Zone, mm-hmm. probably the FF did here. Um, yeah, yeah. I would not I would not be surprised. But yeah. it's... it's uh, it's a story that I simultaneously don't really like, but love everything about it other than the story. Yes, exactly. Like, talking with you about it, I'm like, oh, I'm so excited. And then I look at it, and I'm like, man, this story is junk. I'm so you know glad. Part, that of they... it, part of it is the aliens look dumb. They, they look <laughs> there's, so there's, bad. There's no way of getting around yeah, it. The yeah. aliens just look goofy, and that really does impact your reading of the story. Yeah, exactly. And also, calling it the infant terrible is also kind of a bad movie. <laughs> It, it was. It well, really it does. is. It, mm-hmm. it kind of makes the story seem sillier than it actually is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it it, it makes it seem I mean, silly. It's, it... it's pretty silly. Don't get me wrong. But oh it, yeah. It 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 really is like okay, dumb. Well, and it, it gives away a little bit of the the spin for the first half of the character. I don't know. There's just so much that's wrong with it. Uh, Graham McMillan. Jeff uh, Lester, we we have to we have to wrap this thing up, my friend. We we really do because mm-hmm. listeners, what you don't know is that we actually have to finish a particular time on Thursdays because Jeff has somewhere to be, and that time was seven minutes ago. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so what I will say is thank you very much for listening to the second episode of the Baxter Building. Next episode, I guess we're going to do another twelve issues again. Should. Well, yeah, I mean that's the thing. I haven't really peeked ahead. Let's say let's say twenty four to thirty six, and I think that'll be good because then after that maybe we can stretch it a little bit and run from like thirty seven to fifty two or something like that. But yeah, let's play it safe. Uh, another annual uh, and FF annual number two and issues twenty five through thirty six. 
that that'll work, right? Yeah. Actually, maybe. Hang on, I need to look. Thirty six might be part of a two parter. Oh yeah, check that out. Uh, because I know it's the frightful four. <laughs> no, it? it's not. Oh, it's thank not. goodness. Okay, that's perfect. So yeah, through twenty through thirty six. Okay. Fabulous, uh, and that's what we we'll do. You can find us as ever at waitwatpodcast.com on the Tumblr at waitwatpods.tumblr.com. You can find us on Twitter at, at waitwatpodcast. You can find us where else can you find us? Oh, we're on iTunes, we're on Stitcher. Mm-hmm. Uh, any reviews you wish to leave, that would be wonderful. People have asked us in email, and we have not responded unless Jeff has responded without copying me on it, which is always possible. Um, <laughs> we have made references to the Avengers read-through we did, and where is that? That's actually in earlier episodes of Wait What as a regular podcast. Yes. Um, people who are curious, leave comments on waitwhatpodcast.com. Would you want us to re-edit that into specific podcasts only about Avengers? Yes. Right. Because that is something we've played about with maybe doing mm-hmm. um, if people only want the Avengers stuff. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, you are lovely human beings for listening to us for all this time. We have a ridiculous amount of time, uh, amount of fun doing this. It's true. Very much appreciate it. Yeah. Oh, Jeff, you know what I haven't mentioned and I really should? We are doing this because of the lovely people at Patreon who have been supporting us. And we very, very much appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, if you're looking for us, you can find us at... Jeff, uh, patreon.com slash wait, what podcast. Um, currently there are 95 people who are supporting us there and it is literally because of them that we are doing this podcast. So, uh, definitely we, we did so the Baxter building. You know who to blame. <laughs> That's right. Don't blame us. Blame those 95 people. So yeah, that'd be a good fight. Um, okay, so yeah, look out for us at waitwhatpodcast.com next week for a regular Wait What podcast. Otherwise, we will see you next month. Bye! Beautiful.